the Spider Fan Podcast. I'm Vince Green, your host, and with me today is my guest, No John Tuhi. Say hello, No. Hi, folks. Alright, so today we're going to go over the 2002 movie Spider Man, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, William Defoe, and James Franco and Kirsten Dunst. What we're going to do is we're going to break down the movie, try to take it apart, put it back together again, and see what we come out with. So, Noel, I want to ask you your initial reaction to Spider Man upon release. Were you excited about this? Oh, I was absolutely, absolutely psyched for it because I was a young, I was a teenager at the time. Superhero films kind of really just consisted of you had Tim Burton's Batman, uh, it didn't need a special effects kind of element to go great films. You had Val Kilmer and you had, you know, Batman Ron, which was awful. But, and then you had Superman, which was like the generation before, but this was like my generation's real stamping into the superhero. It was so ambitious through Spider-Man versus something like Batman just because of the power set, the kind of dynamics. And uh, I remember just being completely and totally psyched for it. I was counting down the days. Were you a big Spider-Man fan as a kid? I was a huge Spider-Man fan as a kid. I had uh, my grandmother used to buy, I don't back in the pound shop back in the day, used to be able to pick up comics. My grandma would just go in and spend five, ten euro, pick up the most random things. And of course, a lot of them would be Spider-Man comics. And I absolutely loved them. Then the 90s Spider-Man series came out. And I was absolutely all over it. I used to, you know, imagine myself being Spider-Man, jump around and play Spider-Man, look for Spider-Man costumes, all of, all of that. So would you say your initial kind of like exposure to the the, the, the franchise of Spider-Man and the properties and all this would have been through the comic books? Because mine initially was through the animated Spider-Man series that you just mentioned. Because when I was a kid, comics weren't very um, available. So, like, literally, I wasn't kind of burdened by the whole Steve Dicko of it all, the whole John Romita Jr. of it all. I wasn't really beholden to the comic books. I was more beholden to the cartoons. So do you think the fact that you read both the source material originally from its original interpretation of the comic books, then onto the series of the cartoon, do you think that coloured your opinion in any way when it came to watching the 2002 movie? I suppose I probably had a bit of an elitist feel because I kind of had the best of both worlds. I was coming of age at a time where the animated series dropped and the comics were suddenly kind of in what would have been a small town that we grew up in at the time. They were kind of becoming available. So I knew, like, before I ever saw Sandman, before I ever saw certainly Venom, I knew who he was and he came up in the series and I was like, I told you guys this was going to happen and stuff like that. So because you had a knowledge of the source material in, in all its different varied forms, so were you think your expectations were heightened or lowered going into watching the movie? Definitely heightened. I mean, I wanted the sun, moon, stars. I wanted to see, because you have to understand that Spider-Man, there was some 70s kind of cheap knockoffs and stuff that you can't really count. Where this wall was actually the ground. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the real bad webbing where essentially they throw a roll and then all bunch of dudes. But uh, I was just like, wow, like actually see him. Because special effects, like the Matrix was only a couple of years before and that was the first time, that was like a whole new generation of special effects. And I was like, wow, they might actually be able to do this. And just the idea of Spider-Man in New York, flying around, webbing, taking on the the Green Goblin and just it just blew my mind and I was I was really, really hoping that they that they could do it justice. So going in going in with that, like you had these preconceived notions of the movie and of the source material. Were you happy when you seen Tobey Maguire as being cast as Peter Parker and Spider Man? Tobey Maguire, I think they actually had to delay filming because I think he broke his leg or something. He was filming he made one film before that which I had kind of seen and I, I kind of reserved myself Mm. You know what I mean? It was it was it was from the very little I'd seen of him, it was it was still a complete departure. So I kind of said, okay, he's a tiny bit older than what, what I would have liked from the source material, because this was literally a, a snot nosed kid trying to make it as a photographer and uh 
But I I remember I waited with bated breath. I was excited about Sam Raimi because he had met the Evil Dead, and as far as I was concerned, the man was golden, still golden. Um, and I knew that it was going to be a big budget film, and I knew it was going to be exciting. But I have to say, Toby Maguire, I I can't remember being excited, but I also didn't have anything against it. Yeah. So you pretty much you you, you had no opinion one way or the other. Of Proof the, was in the pudding. Oh, cool. So when you looked at it back then, so you said you no opinion going in. So now, almost 20 years later, what is your opinion of Todd McGuire as Peter Parker? Sorry. I thought he was an excellent Peter Parker. I thought he was a great Peter Parker. I thought he, I, like he, he, he was a sensitive kind of Peter Parker. He was like, that was the thing about the Spider-Man jokes. Everyone, he wasn't a comedian. He was kind of, he used it as a coping mechanism. If you, if you kind of delve enough into it, he had mm. enough tragedy in his life. But he used it as a cop mechanism. There was something like that. Tommy McGuire got the sensitivity of him, as well as the sarcasm of him, mm. and you you could see that the whole great power and great responsibility thing. It was it was both. He had great power, but it's sometimes you could see it was burdened with it, and sometimes he would make jokes like we kind of do in our actual mundane normal lives. So, do you think he was a good Peter Parker and a good Spider Man, or just a good Peter Parker? Oh well, I think no, I think he was. I think he was both, and I think he did a really good job of the Clark Kent Superman dynamic. Mm. of like Richard Donner's exactly yeah. uh, Richard Donner's Superman um, of separating the two yeah it wasn't like the dark brooding guy who's the superhero at night and it's pretty obvious Peter Parker was a kid trying to make it he was trying to save up to buy an engagement ring or whatever it was he was trying to do or he was trying to sell some pictures that he got Spider-Man somehow that some of the best up. pictures of all yeah. <laughs> some of the best the most, the, yeah. like him actually swinging between buildings posing for yeah. the camera like, <laughs> tying up burger I don't know how he did it like the, that's something even I questioned as a kid watching the cartoons I'm like how is nobody questioning how he's getting such high quality photographs of Spider-Man even as a 12 year old I was like this is a bit far-fetched yeah. <laughs> crap 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 yeah. I'm giving $200 for the lot yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, uh, he was, he was a struggling kid. And I like the fact that it wasn't like Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark, fame and fortune. It, it wasn't. He was actually a guy trying to live in New York. And that just came really mundane. Yeah. But really relatable actual problems. I, I think that was the thing with Spider-Man. The reason he was so popular is because he was so relatable. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a, a, a real world guy dealing real world problems. But when he pulls on that mask and so he's dealing with the next level of the human experience. He's like, he's out there. Everything's magnified. It's like the good and evil. Everything is personified to its nth degree. You know what I mean? Like, so he went from a world of grinding. Let's try pay my uh, rent. get these photographs in, try to get some money. And then all of a sudden he puts the mask on. He's fighting green goblin, which kind of segues me nicely into how did you feel of William Defoe? When you initially heard of his casting as oh, Harry or Norman Osborn and Green Goblin, perfect Gordon. sense, just perfect sense. William Defoe is kind of like uh, it's like you've got to be a real dabonair, good-looking guy, and something went slightly wrong at the last second. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he just had this absolutely he was like, left in know, the oven too like, long. Like yeah. one part Brad Pitt, one part Argyle. Yeah, and, and, and he just had. He, he's a great. Well, a he's a great actor. Like mm. he was, he's Real died range. in the wall. Mm. And even in 2000, I suppose one, when there were two, 2000, 2001 during production, mm. he was still extremely established. It was a platoon. Yeah. And, and films like Platoon that. Lines, so he, I think. Yeah. And he was just such an intense character. And the whole thing with the Hobgoblin, was a Hobgoblin or Green, Green Goblin? Green Goblin. Was that he, exactly. Yeah. But the whole thing with Green Goblin is an actual insanity that came with his enhancement. He's Spider-Man's Joker. He's Spider-Man's Joker. That's actually really well put. So mm. I thought William Defoe was... Oh, that that was cast iron from yeah. the get go. That was yeah. cast iron. Me, me too. Even even as like a younger dude, like I saw William Defoe in earlier movies, and he's real range. He's great playing manic characters, 
And the way he settled into the Green Goblin was like a hand in glove. You know what I mean? Like he played a perfect Norman Osborn because when you look at it, he's, as you said, he's like this debonair guy, but like something went wrong along the way. Whereas like he's got this real rough edge to him, but like he's refined at the same time. Mm. And it's kind of like his acting skills are the same way. He's kind of like, he can be a bit over the top, but he's got a real refinement to his talents. You know what I mean? Like, so like when I seen or heard, I should say, of William Defoe being cast, I was absolutely delighted because he does, he has real range and he can play many different kind of, the character on many levels. Because if you look at his portrayal of Norman Osborn and, uh, and what's called, and the Green Goblin, it's like really layered. Like at times he's really, really human, like the way he deals with his son, like even though he has these different expectations of who he should be or how he should be, that like he really does have a real love for his son because you do see him supporting him, trying to look out for him in this strange kind of overbearing way. And as the film goes on, like their relationship, at first there's a lot of friction there and it suffers, but his son is cut from the same cloth as his father and he can kind of see the way they diverge into kind of, or sorry, converge into kind of more of the similar sort of person as it goes along. And speaking of his son, what did you make of James Franco, which I thought was a bit of out of left field when it came to casting him as uh, Harry or uh, Osborne? Osborne? Well, for anyone for anyone that's a bit younger than me, if, if they exist, if that's even possible, um, that the thing was just James Franco was in Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, great show. Uh, and it was a great show, and I had seen that. And then it was just like he was going to play... And oh, he's going to play the son. He's going to play the, the 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 prince to the throne. And I was thinking, like, okay. I remember just thinking, okay, because uh, some guys just break out from these comedy roles into more serious roles, and you and they're absolutely fantastic. Some guys fall flat. So I just, but I liked him so much from Freaks and Geeks. I just wanted him to do well. Do you not think he was a bit aloof for the part? He was. But I, I I I want like when I was watching it, I I didn't think it was like watching. An actor is just not good at acting. I think it was probably stage direction, you know, that he was supposed to play a guy that's not fully picking up on everything that's going on around him. Because you have to understand that he's the the, the best friend of the protagonist and the son of the antagonist. Yeah. And he's not supposed to, and his character isn't supposed to really understand what's going on around him, but he's supposed to be affected dramatically by it. And he's also the boyfriend of the love interest now yeah. I think of it so he's right in the middle of he's in that love triangle absolutely yeah. yeah so I think he had to be a little bit oblivious and if he played at a really really astute kind of really grounded guy who analyses everything around him it might not have worked so I do think because he would have figured things out because he would have figured things out so mm. I do think I do think he gets a pass on that for me even though I did notice it because I don't see how he could have been any other way. He doesn't know who his dad is, and he doesn't know who Spider-Man is. Yeah. And that's that's his character. That's, you could nearly even say that's a thing that kind of ran through his father and his relationship, that he never really knew who his father was. No, actually, and, not at all. Yeah, and the Green Goblin is kind of like a personification of how little he knew about his father. You know what I mean? Like He had this other life, which at first was his professional life. And he always seen that he was uh, kind of like um, supplanted supplanted in his father's eyes by this kind of need for success and this whole thing, the way he was like very uh, career driven. And like literally you could say that like the way he disconnected when he had these two personalities of the Green Goblin and himself, that one, that one hand he's the father and the other hand the Green Goblin is kind of like the manifestation of uh, his self-centeredness, his ego, his uh, ambivalence to humanity in a lot of ways and just relationships in general and like his vengeance yeah exactly his vengeance like and th- his father and his son like his father if you look at like has a similar relationship with his company as his son has with his father he always felt overlooked 
and kind of like under underappreciated and stuff like always seen as an underachiever or a mess up and maybe that's what kind of colored their relationship because the father was taking what was happening to him and kind of being passive aggressively pushing it against his son over time and that's kind of probably what made their relationship deteriorate and that made his son kind of act out which kind of the same thing his father did the relationship with the company kind of deteriorated and he acted out by mm. experimenting on himself and giving himself the serum and stuff like this and um you mentioned that uh james franco and harry is in the middle of a kind of a the the low triangle between peter and uh, yeah, mary, yeah. uh mary jane who's was played by kirsten dunst now kirsten dunst i always thought was a high quality actress but um what did you make of her portrayal as MJ? Because that is a very particular role, and the, the particular the aesthetics of her from the comic book we, and the cartoon. She was very, like, well known as the way she looked, like the red hair, the kind of buxom, kind of beautiful. She was over sexualized a little bit. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Uh, was it Face a Tiger? You just hit the jackpot, was this kind of famous line by her? Mm, yeah. She just shows up and she knows she looks great, and Kirsten Dunst played a little bit more demure kind of character. She was, uh, if I'm being completely honest, and Kirsten Dunst, I had seen her in Interview with a Vampire and as a child. She won an all. She's an incredible actress, but she was kind of the love interest, as in she was searching for love, and she kind of ended up in a lot of Lois Lane scenarios. Mm. You know, not not by the damsel in distress. The damsel in distress. I mean, she's it. It happens to her in the worst of terms. You know, held over a bridge and all of that kind of thing. So I think Kirsten Dunst did an excellent job of what she was given. But again, it probably wasn't the most empowering female role that you're ever going to see in a film. She was the 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 lovesick damsel in distress tied to a t- train track, but heart of gold kind of girl like you know yeah it was uh probably a bit of the most generic of all the characters it was definitely the most generic but that can't be on kirsten dunn's head yeah you know that 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 was the script and that's what was written she was peter parker's inspiration or whatever so uh, you you mentioned uh richard donner's superman do you think that the kind of uh, Margot Kiddo, I think, played... Uh, Margaret Cotter? Mar- Margot Kidder? I think, I think Kiddo, was something like yeah. that. And she played Lois Lane in the Donner ones. And her role was, she was this empowered female. But in the end of the day, she was always the damsel in distress, needing of saving. And do you think because of the obvious influences that Donner's Superman had on the way Raimi brought this Spider-Man to life, do you think that kind of like hindered or do you think it was a bit outdated that maybe she should have been a stronger female character that literally these tropes have been played out and like even though it was 2002 it's a very kind of like backward way of thinking of instead of having this strong female character that was independent in her own right she just amounted to not more than a damsel in distress constantly or a burden to your park in a lot of ways yeah absolutely no i definitely i definitely think if you were to look back on it, it's even in 2002, it was definitely played out. Mm. She happens to get robbed by six guys at the exact same time. She ends up like just having a guy swoop out of the sky and literally snatch her away. She was like, she was in the entire thing. She never, like Lois Lane had an edge to her. Mm. I didn't get that. There was she a, added to the narrative. Exactly. Mm. She didn't add it to the narrative. She always, she famously says when she falls from the top of the building and she's saved by Superman for the first time, instead of being the hapless female, he says, I got you. And then she goes, but who's got you? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, because a man is flying, like, you know. Um, Carson Dunst never got that. She was just screaming and he told her to climb down the cable during that very famous first encounter <laughs> yeah. with the, the goblin. And um, she's like, I can't do it. But Spider-Man convinces her that she can. And, and she falls 50 feet and grabs onto the yeah. side of the carriage and doesn't have her arms ripped off, which was just absolutely... That was her superpower, apparently. And the first the first real, like, major appearance in the movie from the Goblin himself was um, during the Macy Gray concert. And um, do you think 
when you seen that suit in all its glory, I know we saw the suit earlier on, but to see it in broad daylight in all its glory, how did you feel sitting in the cinema some 20 odd years ago and saying, what, what did, did this feel like the Green Goblin to you? When you saw that suit, how did you think of the aesthetics and stuff? Well, I, I kind of liked the cheap, like the Green Goblin was, uh, he was unabashed in the fact that he was a joker. He had like kind of, he had a uh, pumpkin bombs. Mm. And he had like a pantomime kind of mask. And he was a very on the nose character. Yeah, he was a very on the nose character, but he was so on the nose that it kind of did work. And when he showed up, he was a little bit more slick, let's just say, than I would mm. like. It looked like a little bit more like a combat suit. Yeah. Um. Uh. My um. My partner, my fiance, commented that he looked. That's a Power Rangers bad guy. Yeah. And she, she wasn't wrong. Like it is. It was, you know, he kind of showed up and went <laughs> impressive. <laughs> and and like I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But how, did the Green Goblin get his powers from Serum in the comic books? As Actually, well? I don't even really recall. I do know that he. he it was Norman Osborn going insane and having access to the technology, yeah. kind of a la Bruce Wayne, um, true Oscorp. But I actually don't know. I suppose I have to admit to a lack of knowledge in that one. Do, do you know, like, the one thing I had a major problem with the suit, Um, I know I mentioned to you about the, the fake abs and pecs and stuff like that. I, I, anatomical correctness and body armor makes no sense to me. But um, the mask... Like how can you uh like kind of how can you say that that mask was supposed to be for a military suit? Like yeah, it was yeah. to strike fear into the hearts of his enemy or something. Yeah, I yeah. thought like there was no real explanation for the mask to look like a goblin. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're going to make it bulletproof, except in the mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to make it so you can get shot really easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. It had no, it had no, and it was at, at that point. And I, of course, <laughs> like you're talking about the superhero films, so mm. there is such thing. Like you know, suspending your disbelief. Yeah. But absolutely, like and like anatomically correct. Like I think you should have had a little bit of a bulge that kind of veered off to the left. <laughs> just, if, you're, if you're gonna do it, just go hell for letter and do it. Like, do you, you think know? William Defoe's hung? Oh, I think William Defoe's hung. <laughs> William Defoe fucks. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Like, that's if good. he has a two inch or it's a two inch punisher. So we jump back a little bit at the start. Do you, so when Peter Parker is still Peter Parker before he obtains his powers, uh, he goes to a school trip and they make it very, very aware to the audience that he's trying to catch the bus. He gets on the bus, everybody hates him, even the fat kid. Didn't like him, and he said, "Oh, I wish I could even be that guy." Growing up as a fat kid, nobody wishes they could be that guy, and so literally, I'm saying, said they took great pains to show that he was a big super geek. He was ostracized by his uh, high school friends, his peers, and except for this one rich kid. And then they kind of bring they they I think they took maybe it was a bit on the nose to start where it's a bit obvious that they trip him up and he's being bullied and all this, and it's kind of like I think that trope was kind of done to death even in 2002, and I just like. When you go to the part then, like I think the opening might be the weakest part of the entire movie, in my opinion, because it's so obvious and it's so cheesy. And then when he goes to the school trip and you have this woman and she's given seminars and presentations, and she's pretty much listing out all of Spider-Man's abilities. And then you have the spider that's blue and red and he gets bitten. And like my problem is not like it's staying true to the source material, but do you think, what did you make of that opening? Do you think that was the right way to go about it or... Was it a bit cheesy, a bit corny, or what? It was. It was definitely corny, but it was actually. It's there's two sides to it. One, it was extremely close to the source material, mm. but two, it doesn't necessarily always transfer to film. True. Right? So when he's again, again, he's just like we get. It. He's a loser, but he's intelligent. 
but and he has one good friend but like you know girls don't see him and he's uh, yeah so they read like they painted it on thick and then they get it kind of gave this whole it could happen to anyone or greatness can just come upon you and it was yeah it was over established I think he could have just been a dorky kid. Yeah, exactly. Just a dorky kid. Do you think then after he gets bit in the hand and he goes back, he starts going through all these changes and the next section where they kind of highlight his relationship with Aunt May and Uncle Ben, do you think that they actually portrayed Peter Parker to be a very unlikable character in those scenes? Because he's being very obnoxious. He's not like doing his chores or whatever. He's kind of like, the the part where I thought was really stupid was where he's like, um, Aunt May knocks on the door. He's after webbing up everything in his room. He goes... At me, I'm working out. I'm not dressed. Leave me alone. Does that sound very masturbatorial yeah. to you? Oh, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> I, I wonder if that was the joke, you know, because I definitely didn't pick up on it, like, you know, half my lifetime ago. Um, but, like, yeah, I work. I'm hoovering my room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I think also, like, it's sometimes just hard to get the balance between a kid that's hurting and a kid that's treating the few people to give it. A shit mm. about like shit. Yeah. So I, 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 and I do think that's a very thin um, needle to thread. But yeah, he just he, there was like a snot nose in the stone. But at the same time, they established that he was hurting. Like yeah. it was his uncle Ben and his aunt May. It wasn't his parents. There was yeah. already a lot of tragedy. In do his you life. think they should have touched on what happened to his parents a bit more? I think they probably purposefully left that kind of mystery to it. Just a kid whose life had fallen apart. And sometimes I like that. Because especially when you're going to do an origin story. Mm. Like if, if you know, sometimes oh, we won't get into other films. But there's one film where they didn't get into it for 45 minutes. Yeah. And you're just thinking, look. Oh, you need less exposition. Yeah, like, let's just get there. Because especially when, like this 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 wasn't like the Marvel Universe of today. This, this, we didn't have much reference for it. I wanted to see Spider-Man. Mm. I wanted to see him swing between buildings. Uh, right in between New York taxi cabs, jump 50 feet from a standing position, all of that. So I think it it hurried it along, which mm. I was grateful for. But at the same time, I, I feel like maybe it's a bit backhanded then to go back over it yeah. and say like, oh, I wanted more exposition on these certain aspects. Yeah, yeah. I wanted them to get to it and it didn't take too long. To yeah, because the pacing is one of its strengths. The, pace, the yeah. pacing is definitely one of its strengths. By the time he faces down with Flash... The, the bully in school mm. he, he accidentally hits with a tray the webbing all of that kind of jazz um, I thought yes that wasn't too bad we're here yeah. he's, he's he's enhanced he's stronger he's faster he, he has greater sense of danger around him and uh, I thought wow I, finally I'm about to see Spider-Man and that's when Spider-Man announced himself and I don't know how many minutes into the film I wish I did actually just for the sake of the point I'm making but it felt like the pacing yeah, was perfect. I, I there was, was enough film left yeah, for us to enjoy it. was around the half that. hour mark. Yeah, that's, that would like be that. my guess. Um, and that's Flash Thompson. He's talking about uh, the kind of local bully played by Joe Magniello who's going to be playing Deathstroke in the upcoming mm. uh, Snyder Cut, I think, of the Justice League movie. Not, but a big jump from being like a bully. I think bully number one mm. in a Spider-Man film many years before. That's because he's aged like a fine wine. That's he a handsome man. Like, he's a fine looking mm. man. If yeah. anyone's listening to this, Joe Magniello, just Google him. He's a handsome man. He's, he's a good He's rugged in all the right areas, ladies. That's all I'm saying. I want right. him inside me. <laughs> you want him to wear your Spider-Man suit? Yeah, yeah. Where you like I his Spider-Man suit. I want him to give me a death straw. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, um, so they kind of, they're very quick to uh, settle you into where's Peter Parker's place in this world that he calls home. He's a nerd. He's at the lowest rung of the social ladder. He gets his amazing abilities and it's kind of obviously like a lot of these things it's used as a metaphor for guys going through puberty or whatever and he's going through these changes as he says and 
literally as the movie goes on, it is like he's becoming from an adolescent to a full fledged teenager, and then he kind of becomes a man later on in the movie after Uncle Ben's death. But like, I think the most, uh, most uh, truest said to the source material, the truest said was Spider Man's origin where Uncle Ben dies. And I'm going to let you talk through that. So I'm going to say to you, I'm going to paint a picture. Spider Man, he sees an ad, he wants to buy a car to impress Mary Jane. He sees an ad in the newspaper. A lot of comic books, and he goes to a wrestling competition mm -hmm. to fight Bonesaw, who's played by the late great Macho Man Randy Savage. The late Savage. great. Yeah. I'm sorry, it works, it, it's worth repeating. Yeah. The late great Macho Man Randy yeah, Savage. A legend steroids uh, in human form. And um, <laughs> So what did you think of that scene? Do you think, I, to me, that was the one that felt most like the source material. I oh, I actually, I think that was perfect. I, mm. there, I have no criticism of everything from when he shows up and he said, you know what, I've enough of being the loser, the lowest guy on the social ladder, as you said. Yeah. And this is where I get to show off who made that. Did your husband give it to you? Yeah. And Macho Man, which is, I think, Blue Balls made human. Yeah. <laughs> in the ring. And he, he beats him easily because obviously he's literally a superhero and doesn't matter if you're just a, a, a strong dude. Yeah. And, but then it quickly, it, well, he gets introduced by Bruce Campbell, which I, I'd like to give a shout out. Oh, to. 100%. That, that Sam, Sam, Raby, uh, Sam Raimi alum um, in from The Evil Dead. He played Ash in The Evil Dead. He's an absolute legend of the B-movie circles. and To this day? To this day. And he's actually got a book, if anyone's read it. I think it's called like, Life as a B-movie Actor or something, something like, like that. that yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. I read some of it because I'm not a completionist. And so literally, I'm going to say to you, so the reason I brought up that scene in particular is not just because it was so true to the source material hit all the notes, it was beautiful. And um, the real life ramifications of inaction. So when you look at Spider-Man, he gets ripped off by this promoter and he instead of the $3,000 that it was advertised, he gets $100, whatever. Immediately after he leaves, a guy comes in, robs the guy. And then as he's fleeing, Peter Parker has his first chance to be super heroic, but he doesn't take it. And he allows the guy to go out of some sort of pettiness kind of like a bit of vengeance against the promoter just screwed him over but the ramifications of that are super real world and uh that leads to ben parker being killed by the guy who peter parker allowed to flee and get away which he discovers when he actually tracks him down yeah exactly so what do you think of that scene do you think that had the real emotional payoff it, it was kind of trying to come true with like do you think that taught us a lesson as the audience as well as the character and and in what sense like do you think that do you think that was, um, obviously it was such a major, like the, the whole thing before that great power comes great responsibility is the, may say is the mantra that Spider-Man lives his life by. And do you think that scene had the emotional payoff as it intended to? I think it was probably, if you were just to break it down as cinema, I think it was probably the, the best scene of the whole film. Mm. You know, he, your man rips him off and it's the most, it's something I could imagine myself just kind of going, this guy rips you off and then the guy comes in and robs him and he instantly asks you to help him. Mm. And we all have that, like, fuck no yeah, exactly. value to mm. us. Like, why would I go on my way to help you after the... Even if it was... We've had it in our lives where somebody's just being rude. Yeah. And then they want you to give up your seat for them or something like that. I'm, I'm just I'm making it up on the fly. Um, and you go, no, no. But when you can do... If your capabilities were so much more, and that's literally the great power, great responsibility yeah. part or so much more to actually easily stop these things from happening. Do you have an obligation to? And it, it's, it goes into a question of ethics. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really powerful moment. And not only is there cause and causality, it costs him everything. Exactly. Yeah. And it costs him like his, not his father figure and all this is like, it kind of harkens back to 
for uh, all evil needs to do to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And yeah. literally, this is just the perfect uh, kind of encapsulation of this. It's like he had the chance, but he said in that moment, he gave in to the individualistic nature of himself. Like as he grows older and after Ben dies, he understands that there's a bigger picture. His actions have bigger meaning and bigger ramifications than than what he originally previously taught in his pre Spider-Man life. So this kind of like set him up for everything that was to follow. How he this really coloured how he dealt with life and dealt with the world around him. So like after after Ben dies, and there, I think there's a bit of a time jump and Spider-Man kind of he Peter Parker grows older. He I think he leaves school, which to me was disappointing because really the 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 kind of the whole thing behind Peter Parker is he's a teenager going through high school and this is why he was so relatable to teens and people that are kind of being nostalgic about their youth but they kind of did a time jump and he's not even is he even in college or like is he just you know, I think that that was quite big I think he was just him and MJ they were just trying to get by mm. you know they really hit home with the working class man who's trying to make it in a very cutthroat world. Mm, but he was kind of sucking on the teeth of the Osborns, wasn't he? Because he was living with Harry and he mentions that the father got in the apartment. So he probably wasn't even paying rent, which is another thing that's kind of the antithesis of the character because he's supposed to be this grinder, this guy that's eking out a living, that, but still eking out a living at daytime and at nighttime he's taken down like, you know, these super villains that are like, you know, the personification of evil in the world and like, I think they kind of took away from it because if you look at it, it's, it's, he's nearly too polished when they do the time jump. He's like, he's settled in, he's a photographer, he's working with the Daily Bugle and all this kind of Freelance. thing. Like, uh, freelancing. Yeah, sorry. And, um, but like, do you think that they kind of it would have been better to, to keep him in high school for the first movie? I think, oh, I 100% think that. And I've always thought that. And especially like, what's the rush? Mm. Especially when you know when, when ultimately making a trilogy, it's such a franchise-ready property, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, like you know, uh, and there's nothing about the film that would have been so costly to keep him yeah. in, uh, to keep him in school, or at least keep him in college, or something like that. He could have been doing a bit of freelancing photography because it was always a big part of the Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, sorry, the Peter Parker, uh, but yeah, no, they they were trying to rush it along, and I, again, while the pacing of the film was good, I just don't think it needed to go there. It would have been great to open the second film with. Despite the established Spider-Man in his universe mm. as an adult, but they were trying. I guess they were to try to treat, uh, treat the film like a whole, and, and as they showed, but there, no, they definitely rushed him into adulthood. Do you think they did the time jump to kind of alleviate some of the disbelief in seeing a twenty-six-year-old guy playing a sixteen-year-old teenager? Well, actually, that's the. But how used to that are we? Mm. Me, like I, I watch shows to this day, and I always, I, I ask, I ask uh, my partner Sheila, I ask her why age that person, why age is she, and they're usually twenty two, twenty three, or even mm. twenty four years old, child labour laws and all that kind of stuff. It's you know, <coughs> can't, it's hard to do. So I, I looked at him and went, well, that is one, you know, that that's a that's a fifteen year old guy who's lived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got the time jump now, and Peter's. Uh, freelancing for the bugle um, they're not really do they tell you what Harry's doing is he working with his father they're not really specific about what he's up to I, I think he's just trying to prove himself and his father eyes and I don't think they really bog themselves down with mm. the specifics and, and and Mary Jane's a failing actress which we find out because she's waiting and then she runs into Peter which seems to be like quite some time since the last seen each other and that scene do you think like that's got the real emotional kind of payoff that like it should, like, should have like because 
you see Peter, he's actually on the, oh, he's kind of upwardly mobile in, in the world now. And she's kind of taking the downturn. She's like, she was like, just say, the prom queen, most popular girl in school. And now she's kind of peaked in high school. Now she's a waitress and he's just like successful photographer. And do you think way, the way they contrasted their relationship previously to that moment, do you think that was kind of done well? Like, Yeah, I, I think it is, again, it was the most relatable part because everyone aims for greatness <clears throat> and it's just not on the cards for most people. Um, he kind of meets up with her and you kind of realize, again, he's upwardly mobile, but he's not top of the world. Mm. And she well, she had like big ideas, like you said, peaked in high school. That's that's the most generic thing. But I think they actually handled it really well. But I always think that, that Toby Maguire just played the doughy-eyed, the doughy-eyed um, guy for, for, for Mary Jane really well. Yeah. You could tell like he still looked at her the same way and he did that really well. He just looked at her like she's the only thing in the world. And there she was, like just with a name tag and a waitress uniform on. He's telling her there's no shame in it. And do you think that humanised her as a character? Absolutely it did. Because again, she was she was so hapless at times. Mm. But just being a normal human being in the world trying to get by is the most relatable thing that you can put into a film. You know, you can't just literally have her tied to a train track for the 90 minutes. Yeah, so like instead of her just being human bait, she is actually a real life breeding character in the background. Yeah, and it makes you care about her because otherwise, like you said, sometimes you're human bait and you're like, maybe it would be great if she did get thrown off the bridge. And... Immediately then, when you find out, I think it's around the graduation scene where Harry, you hear that Mary Jane, I remember jumping back a little bit, but Mary Jane, you find out she's broken up a flash and Harry suddenly just pounces on her. Do you think that's a bit out of left field for a guy that seems to care enough for Peter? I know it's a bit revenge because him, Peter and his father have a much closer relationship because of the scientific aspects of their personalities. But do you think that was a bit out of left field in this instance? I know like in the comic book, I think it has happened a few times. I think like well, what they really wanted to stress in the film is that Spider-Man can't catch a break. Mm. It's like, yes, wouldn't it be amazing if you had all of these powers, but he cannot catch a break. Mm. He cannot have steady work. He cannot have the girl of his dreams. And even though he's a full-fledged superhero, he's, he's a menace. Yeah. You know, all of the newspaper headlines. So I, I, I do think whatever it, it, they could do to... They, didn't, they really didn't want him to be an Iron Man or a Batman. They yeah. didn't want him to be like this like suave bachelor or you know uh socialite kind of character and i think they kind of hammered at home perhaps a bit too much yeah so and they bring stuff in from left field just just to let us know so that. more akin to christopher reeves in the richard donner superman where he's just like hapless nerd you know like yeah you know, like, yeah can't even walk through a, a revolving door without getting caught in it and all this kind of stuff yeah but that, that was it they really tried to say like the, the, the kind of hammer home for the kids watching that you know they wouldn't fix your life so like he touched on it in the papers he was a menace and the reason he was being portrayed as a menace to the general public was because of the main editor around the daily bugle which was played by the incredible jk simmons and that was j jonah jameson and is there a part that's ever been better cast than jk simmons in the role impossible like it's that is probably the most spot on casting in the entire film if you ask me it's just impossible like he should have been in it more probably because he was so strong I think the reason, like, maybe if they had focused a bit on that relationship more, because he was kind of thrown in nearly, not as an afterthought, I wouldn't go that far, but, like, do you not think that his relationships with certain people weren't paid the homage they deserved? Like, the, his relationship with J. Jonah Jameson is very transactional. It's very, you know, it, hap- it happens before, it, it kind of happens before it's ever really begun, you know, that kind of way. Like, so when you look at the scene of, like, it's kind of, sometimes it, it comes across a bit corny, but... 
They did give J. John Jameson some props. He didn't give up his sores, uh, which I'll always mention. That uh, when the Green Goblin attacks and blows up, what you make of that scene where you re you really see the the first time where he thinks Spider Man's working with the Green Goblin. What do you think of that scene? Well, that's the thing. The one thing about him is he does fancy himself a journalist. Mm. So he, like, it's okay to be wrong, but he's not a liar. Yeah. It's actually how he perceives him. And even though they didn't use the character maybe as much as we would have liked, mm. he got the maximum amount of yeah. every second he was on screen. He he was never the second second two character in any scene he was in. It was about him. Peter Parker was just getting chewed out by him or he was just screaming at the staff about getting a headline out. He was perfection personified. But they kind of say that, yeah, he's rough around the edges, but he's not the bad guy. Yeah. He's, uh, God, I think there is a word for it. Or like something that sits in between a pro and an antagonist. He was just this character. And he was the comic relief in ways, despite being a really, really intense character. But he was just played so well. And this is something that gets transferred to comic from the comic book that does work. Yeah. Like they brought the comic book character to life. Yeah, because everybody's had an asshole boss. Exactly. Mm. And in, in, a, in even a campish way. Like he was yeah. so eccentrically, like, you know, I want everything done five minutes ago. And he kind of stays in that fifth gear, even when he's just looking at some pictures, even when he's just talking to his main editor. And you're all. Oh, it was one of the best performances. Do you think that he was blinded by his own opinions of Spider Man because he could clearly see that Spider Man and the Green Goblin aren't working together, but yet they continue on that kind of route? So, like, what I was trying to touch on, I think that scene might have been a little bit needless because the reason Green Goblin attacking him at the Daily Bugle was obviously because someone's taking Spider Man's pictures. But do you not think that scene could have been used? To actually change J. Jonah Jameson's opinion of Spider-Man himself, like you know, I think it was long picture. I think they wanted they like they were pop in that way. The film was very self-contained, but I think Sam Raimi probably had his eye on the prize, and he, he definitely didn't want J. Jonah Jameson going into perhaps a second film, which might have only been a dream in the back of Sam Raimi's mind. He yeah. didn't know if it was going to gross enough and all that kind of stuff, but he didn't want to lose that because it's quite funny. The downtrodden Spider-Man is such a thing that he didn't want to give up. 90, 60 minutes into a film yeah. and just make Jamie Jonah Jameson was famously always had an antagonistic approach to mm. Spider-Man and he didn't want to make like a second film or, or a trilogy and just have him give up the ghost straight away so I do like it yeah. he, he's a good man in his heart but he's too much pride to admit when he's wrong yeah. but unfortunately when you uh, have something like a media outlet in your control yeah. that it's not just a, a character flaw it actually has real world implications yeah he's kind of bound by his preconceived notions of it, people and exactly yeah. and he absolutely refuses just just admit that you're wrong so after that scene right it goes into the first real up close interaction between the Green Goblin and Spider-Man where Green Goblin is kind of like trying to sell Spider-Man onto becoming his ally and like to say that the world is against you. He's trying to paint this picture that Spider-Man has been turned on and discarded by this world that he worked so hard to save. And do you, what do you think of that scene? Like, I think that scene to me reminded me a lot of the, the cartoons growing up. The way it was like the, the mist and the smoke and it was on a rooftop and stuff like that. Like, and I think it was plucked straight from the comic books. And yeah, stuff it's like a devil that. on your shoulder moment. Yeah, exactly. And it's like no matter how downtrodden he is, he hasn't given up on people. Or he hasn't lost his moral compass, or even though he's lost Uncle Ben, he hasn't forgotten the type of man that Uncle Ben tried to make him. So it is, it's a very character, like when I say character, I'm not talking about character of the film, I'm talking about the character of a character. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it really builds up and goes, yeah, it doesn't matter that he doesn't get the tanks he deserves, and it doesn't matter that 
you know, life is hard for him. There's there's a, a line that he absolutely will not cross. Even they they were very careful with the guy who killed Uncle Ben. Yeah. They were very careful that he accidentally kills himself. Yeah, exactly. He trips over a pipe and falls out the window. Spider-Man yeah. doesn't catch him. Don't know if he really tries to catch him, to be fair, but yeah. Spider-Man did not kill him. Yeah, it's kind of like in Batman Begins, I don't have to, or that, I can't kill you, but I don't, I have, don't to have to save you. I don't have to save you. Yeah, exactly. So they established him as like, yeah, look, he's going to have angry moments. He's not always going to be the best guy in the world, but there is a line he simply refuses to cross. He's a human. He's a human, exactly. Mm-hmm. So he's a superhero in the sense that he might be tempted, but he'll never give in. Yeah, so do you think that's because of his relationship with Ben? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a famous line from a Batman comic where he was just like... Uh, you know, one of the Robins, probably Jason Todd, because he was the hired one, says, like, you just don't have the guts to do what's needed. And that's, like, kill the Joker or whoever yeah. you have. And he goes, do you think that would be difficult? He goes, that would be the easy thing. Yeah. Because that would be so easy. Yeah. So I always thought it was kind of like that. You yeah, know, Every like, man has to have a core. Exactly. Mm. He goes, do you think that's difficult? I, what I'm doing is the hard thing. Yeah. And never, ever, ever kind of drop into that level. And I think they did. I think they did a really good job in that because they... The um the goblin was so unapologetically on one side, the side of evil, the side of self interest, the side of revenge, the side of maybe the worst sides of humanity. And Peter Parker, while not perfect, like because no one is, he was definitely on on the other side. He was on the side of virtue. He was trying his best to be a hero in a kind of a, a tankless world. You, you compare him to somebody like Superman, who was the golden boy. Yeah, exactly. He's the boy scout. The boy scout, mm. you know, like even godly. Yeah. You know what I mean? You used to have scenes in the film stuff where he'd almost come down from the sun. Yeah. You know, like kind of come into view and he and he was handsome and he was, you know, blue eyed, all American boy. So I like the Spider Man wasn't that. Just that you mentioned Superman, do you remember the scene where Peter Parker is running and he tears open his shirt to yeah. reveal the Spider Man suit? That was very Superman esque. That was very Superman. But yeah. I think that's tasteful. Yeah. In the sense I think that's a, that's like a nod yeah. and not trying to take actually take yeah. away from it's, always, a, it's uh, emulation, not imitation. Exactly. Yeah. That's mm. that's exactly what it was. And they say that that's what it is. Uh, imitation is that you know the highest form of flattery. Yeah. So yeah, Sam Raimi wanted to say like, uh, I'm making like a superhero movie for the modern era. But yeah. That doesn't mean I he, haven't. He's taken a true anything. blue hero with shades of grey too. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Mm. And any good hero is. Why do you think Wolverine is probably like one of the most loved? Batman is probably the most loved. Yeah, character. exactly. Superman is. We want flawed loved. heroes. We want flawed yeah. because you are. Because even though you, you, sometimes you imagine yourself as a kid, you, I used to like play in the back garden, pretend yeah. to be this, that, and the other. But I never pretended to be this really perfect character that has no anger issue or, or, or you know, and, no, and no temptation. It does the advantage of growing up with DC and Marvel in your life because they paint real human people in these crazy over-the-top scenarios, but they're making human decisions based on human emotions at all times. Like you know? Exactly, yeah. So I never wanted to be, for me, like I, I come up back as a kid, I never wanted to be Cyclops. Yeah. I actually loved Superman. I wanted to be Superman, but Superman was like such a god tier yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, I just yeah. want him because of the ability. Yeah, not because Batman of the was Batman is essentially like he's Zorro slash Ninja. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like he's and he's got all the gadgets and stuff. So there was the coolest was Wolverine because he's he's the manly man because he can take a beating. That was yeah. his power set. But like Spider Man kind of fell into that. He was kind of like a an approachable, not at all an anti hero, a hero hero, but not just not polished. He used to leave like a. A change of clothes on the tops of certain things. Yeah, exactly. Some, I like that, yeah. yeah, sometimes he used to be in a bind. And that's the way he was actually trying to balance a normal life with a life less ordinary. Yeah. And I, I, that's, that Spider-Man did better than absolutely anybody else. So you think Tobey Maguire, or you mean the character of Spider-Man? I thought the character of Spider-Man. Yeah. But I thought Tobey Maguire did it well. Like he, he came across as, of the, the Spider-Mans, he came across as the most sensitive. 
yeah. he was just a kid who was just trying to figure it all out and it's coming out very fast and he was forced to grow up very fast which yeah. you know they really pushed we're not seeing that as much in films these days they're kind of taking their time with it you know like the films these days have like era one two three and four yeah like absolutely 12 year plans it's built for expansion absolutely yeah. built for expansion but like when spider-man came out they didn't know if they were going to be able to create a marvel universe it wasn't a marvel universe it was a sony universe yeah, so standalone it was a standalone mm. so it was ambitious and look with the exception of we were watching it just earlier today, and with the exception of the scenes that are pure CGI, yeah, where like Goblin is, there's even one scene where he's flying, and I think his proportions are off. Yeah, like he looks like he's probably shorter than he actually yeah. is. Um, with the exception of that, I think it's aged really, really well, and it's very easy to look back on something eighteen years old mm. and and kind of shit on it. But like, which again, somebody having this conversation eighteen years from now talking about Avengers Endgame, yeah, could say the same things. Like you know, but at the time, I think. I thought it was a really so good you think movie. everything apart from the special effects is aged well with the yeah I think some of the special effects I look at and it's got a bit of a Jason and the Argonauts feel like it was, you know it was cutting edge for it's time yeah. you, you're seeing it through the eyes of somebody but it was still the early days of a new technology the early days of a new technology mm. you know uh, Matrix had changed the game a few years before and, and they definitely had access to better technology but it, it wasn't perfect it's still not perfected yeah so, so do you think like when you look back at it that uh, Every aspect of the movie, casting, special effects, aesthetics. Like, I know we didn't really touch on the Spider-Man suit. That was incredible. Spider-Man suit was incredible. 10 out of 10. That's all there is to say about it. Yeah. And that ass on the bridge scene is incredible. It's a tight ass. It's one of the the, the best web-slinging asses I've ever seen in my entire life. Not to say that I've seen many web-slinging asses, but that's definitely up there, the top tier of web-slinging asses. But That's uh, not like a slight at Andrew Garfield or Tom Holland's ass. Yeah, I just don't think yeah. there was enough attention paid. I just don't think there was enough attention. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I think like when you're t- you're talking of like when you want to rank the Spider-Man asses, that it has to be Tobey Maguire up top, or maybe an unknown suit stuntman that filled the suit in that moment. Actually, I don't that's know. Fair. You they know what I mean? I'm not they sure. Don't always get props. Yeah, because Tobey Maguire might be doing squats, but I don't know to verify that. Like, but but um, like so we we've covered ext- the aesthetics, the special effects, and. So I want so two of the main people in Spider-Man's lives are Uncle Ben and Aunt May, who I thought were really underutilized. Uh, I don't even know I, I I could check, but I don't really know who the actors were to play them. But I thought Aunt May was a bit played over the top, especially that scene where Green Goblin attacks her and she's saying uh, Makes her finish the prayer. Yeah, it makes her finish the prayer. I thought that was a bit on the nose and a bit corny, like, but um so do you think the the relationships he had with Aunt May and Uncle Ben, apart from when he was originally getting his powers and he was kind of a bit of a douchebag to them, do you think that was portrayed correctly or do you think that was given the gravitas it deserved? Because remember, Aunt May and Uncle Ben are the reason Peter Parker's actually a good guy. You know what I mean? As a, When he becomes Spider-Man, the reason he's a good guy and not a villain is because of his relationship with Aunt May and, Peter, or, and Uncle Ben. So do you think that was given the same gravitas it deserved? or I think they probably had to be underappreciated characters because Spider-Man himself is an underappreciated character kind, mm. of, kind of on on a macro and they were underappreciated on the micro um he they were he wasn't always as thankful as he should be they were kind of like the the old couple just trying to get by but they you know they loved him and they'd do anything for him um i thought they were played really well i thought uncle ben kind of had a gravitas to him yeah i thought his death definitely had gravitas yeah, it's it a good was scene. a very good scene um I th- yeah, I think like it was almost telling the way he treated them was almost like the way he was going to be treated, and that's that's the good, great thing in cinema whenever anything comes full circle, yeah. even if it comes very very different formats. So I never I never had anything bad to say about them again, except they were like almost 
pristine. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the Waltons or Little House yeah. on the Prairie levels of good, hard-working, decent people. I, I think my only problem with Aunt May in particular was she's a very ancillary character. Like, you could have had that movie without her, but you can't have Spider-Man without her. I don't think she right, was paid yeah. the same respect. That, like, she, people have to remember that, like, the way uh, Alfred is to Batman, she literally is the same way to him. She colours his perspective of the world. She literally mm. builds him up. He's broken down after his uncle dies and she's the one that builds him back up. She's grounded as well. She never, yeah, exactly. she never gets caught up in the, the glitz and glamour no more than Alfred did of, of superhero mm. life. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right that you couldn't, in one way you couldn't have it without her, but if you were to look at the screenplay and go, right, if I took her out of this scene, this scene, this scene, the film doesn't like suddenly not work. Exactly. She's just background. She's just background. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought was a little bit disappointing. I thought like there could have been a few, maybe there is a cut out there, but I think there could have been a few more moments of heart to heart without me. Maybe she's teaching him something that could have coloured his opinion or his actions later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like the way they gave the great response, uh, great park was great responsibility scene with Uncle Ben. That That's really well done. It's very true to the source material. But I think that Aunt May should have been used more. And because I think they should have maybe cast a better actor in the role, she might have been used more. Or maybe they cast a, kind of a weak actress, in my opinion, in the roles because they knew they weren't going to use her more. You know, that kind of way. Like, yeah. The thing is, in comics, and this has <clears throat> been true for uh, since 1939, since Bob Kane, was it? Um, nothing, nothing builds character like dying. Yeah. It's Batman's parents. Yeah. And it's Uncle Ben. You need that personal tragedy. Yeah, you need that personal tragedy. So... So you don't have to get yourself bogged down in like real deep life lessons with somebody you love talking. You know, just die. Yeah. Have the person die. Like, I mean, they had Uncle Ben die and they had it to some small degree be Peter Parker's fault. Yeah, exactly. Batman, they had the parents die and they had him be in a position where he wasn't strong enough. Yeah, and it was kind of his fault because he asked him to leave because he got afraid. That was right. Him. He got afraid. They were watching Zorro as well. Yeah. Yeah, he got afraid and he asked him to leave. So, yeah, so he carries guilt, but also he wasn't able to do anything. So he made sure that that would never be the case again. And there's just no amount of disposition and there's no amount of monologue that can give the gravitas that something as simple as dying. She was just like, what she played after Uncle Ben died was mm. a reminder that Uncle Ben lived. Yeah. As in, she was the, the, the widow, the woman left behind. Yeah, exactly. The woman who was lucky enough to have a man so good in her life. And, and, and it's not that she was a better character than Uncle Ben or Uncle Ben was a better character than her. Uncle Ben died. Yeah. And that's just the, the, the heaviest thing. The living, living memorial of how he lived his life. Exactly. And, a, mm. and, 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 and quite in some ways a reminder yeah, just a walking, talking reminder of of Uncle Ben, the 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 thing that keeps Spider Man as Spider Man, as Spider Man, you know, now the Spider Man who will save Jonah Jameson mm. without a thought, even Jonah Jameson hates him and is accusing him of a crime during the the rescue. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Uncle Ben gave him that. Yeah, the the, the power and responsibility, the, the Spider Man tagline, the one everybody knows. Um, but yeah, so I I think they could have done more with her character, but when you have when you do the death scene right, yeah, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just like there's there's no better origins for a character than a uh, personal tragedy. Like, no. or, like literally, as you said, you, you can cut out so much uh, like uh, chat from the week by literally saying this is the reason for being. He's he felt uh, uh, he felt to blame for his uncle dying, and this is like and the reason the way his uncle tried to get him to live his life is the way he's going to forever live his life because he felt um, responsible for his death. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So like when, so we've touched on a lot of stuff here. Like we've touched on, as I said, the aesthetics and the casting and stuff like this. So as the story progresses, 
Aunt May is being attacked and Peter, uh, like, I think it comes uh, after the scene where the Green Goblin fakes, uh, he, he, he fakes a fire or not fakes a fire, but he sets a building on fire. He draws Peter Parker out and he literally, this is the moment now, where he, just moments before, I think it's a Thanksgiving dinner where they find out, he finds out Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And the reaction to that, I thought, was a bit silly. Like, he just gets up and storms out. You know what I mean? I think he gives away a bit too much. And, like, do you think their relationship, the way they portrayed the relationship between Harry Osborne and the Green Goblin with Peter Parker and Spider-Man, do you think that was portrayed correctly throughout the movie? No. I think the, 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 it was more complex than it was given. Mm. They, they set it up to be quite a complex relationship. You set up with two people with, who care about each other and then with ulterior identities of two people who are, by default, mortal enemies. Yeah. And then you have like how one dynamic might shift into the other dynamic. Yeah. And they waited till the end of the film to just have Norman Osborn take off the mask and, yeah. and, and, and he reveals that it's him. So no, they didn't. They, they never got into the, <clears throat> to the tickets with that at all. And I think they could have, or they should have. And again, maybe it's a pacing issue because the, you know there's so many. There's at least at this stage you've got five main characters with Aunt May, Kirsten Dunst, Mary Jane. You have James Franco. You have William Defoe, and you have Toby Maguire's Peter Parker, and they've all they're all spinning around each other. They introduce it about two thirds of the way through the film, yeah. and then I, so if it was me and I'm sitting there and I'm the director in this scenario i'm like wow how much time am i willing to devote to this yeah i think it deserved more attention than it got but i'm not going to pretend i'm a better cinematographer and i could have like squeezed in the the, the care and nourishment yeah. that he needed if anything maybe if he found out earlier but then again giving away a superhero's identity in the first act is usually just not a done thing yeah, either because you're playing a game of cat and mouse you're playing a game of cat and mouse like yeah. you know like superman to this day has what four with well, his parents lois lane and and you know the Justice League or whatever, and pretty much end of story. Yeah. People who know who he is, your your secret identity, it's it's something they don't give away quickly. And if you notice, Norman Osborn dies. Yeah. Like the best way to get a good way to get killed in a superhero film is to be a person a person who can't be trusted finding out the secret identity mm. of, of of the main character of Superman and Batman of absolutely anybody like. And since you touched on the death scene, do you what did you make of the the climax? We so right, I'm gonna set the, I'm gonna set the table. So we have. Norman Osborn finds out Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So he starts targeting the ones he loves. He attacks Aunt May and then he finds out that Mary Jane, I think, breaks up with Harry. And like a good father, I always said he's got he's got a strange good father nature to him. So he decides to target Mary Jane because it's a twofer. You're kind of like getting revenge for Harry getting his heart broken. And you also get to bring Peter Parker out of his place of hiding. And you draw him out in into the open to be attacked and to be maybe killed so when we we set the table so we're going to go to the bridge now which is near the movie's climax and you got peter parker coming in to rescue the the forever the perpetual damsel in distress for the second time and the second time in maybe 20 minutes yeah exactly it's it's a bit much like i really think like they could have like she's so weak she's such a weak character yeah like like played by a strong actress which you know it's it's silly like and so when we get to this scene and Peter has to, or Spider-Man, I should say, has to has to rescue Mary Jane. And so, literally, you got the scene on the bridge where Green Goblin's holding her loft out over and he gives him a choice. This is the age-old choice of save one the or tram, save the man. The tram that has money on one yeah. and the side. And what do you think of that scene? Is it a bit silly? 
yeah, of course. Well, that that was the over the top superhero scene. Mm. It was like you have to pick one or pick Manny, and he was like, I pick both. Yeah, exactly. you know, he mm. dives, he saves Mary Jane. He... <laughs> what do you call those things? The the what the kids and everything were in. It was a. Uh, Cable um, card, is it? What's it called? A cable, a cable card? Oh, a cable card. I thought you said a Kangle card. But like, we suddenly discovered that he, like, he's able to hold a loft like about nine to ten metric tons. <laughs> but Spider-Man has been always ridiculously strong in the comic book. One yeah. of the strongest superheroes in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, but well, not yeah, not compared to maybe Thor or Hulk. But he's yeah, well, Thor's a god. Yeah. yeah. Fair. <laughs> fair. 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 Point. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and then he's hanging from it. And yeah, it was just that kind of thing where that was the time where they met him not so human. Yeah, that he, was very much so the superhero, like, where he does he has the power to not have to make those choices. What, what I don't like about that scene is got, you got three quarters of a movie that is rooted in realism, and then you got this last scene that just stands out. It's over the top. Like Mary Jane's whole involvement in the scene, as you mentioned earlier, she falls down. Peter convinced her to, to make her way down a cable car, which have, would have torn the hands off her, and then she falls a great deal, and then she grabs herself on the side of the cable car. About a 30 foot fall. 30 foot fall. And this is a small woman and like literally her arms would have been ripped out of the sockets. Yeah, she would have drowned in the ocean without arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's the reality of it. Like, so do you think that seems a bit out of place compared to the rest of the movie that was very much kind of grounded, you know, that kind of way? Like, yeah. Well, that's the suspend your disbelief scene. That's mm. the, the, the absolutely one completely over the top scene. And we've seen them in Batman. Mm. I, I, I remind, like what I remember watching that, I, I remember what thinking of her comfort conversing with somebody afterwards was um, Michael Keaton's Batman suddenly just randomly fighting a ninja down a lane with yeah. two swords and he had mm. apparently those kind of wings on these gloves or yeah. solid or cast iron or something and it's just ding, ding 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 and he just fights him off and you're like oh okay where did that come from yeah it was grounded in some sort it, of realism it's a tonal shift it's it? a tonal shift mm. but then again like they, they, they set up a big scene and it was never going to be a dark enough superhero movie like you had Uncle Ben dying and that was dark and yeah. that was but they had to that's literally integral to his to his yeah. uh, character um, but they weren't going to have Mary Jane or a, or a cart full of kids die yeah. they just weren't so they went so he said right we're going to do this and we're going to go big or go home yeah. and it has to work out it yeah. just has to. And that's superhero movies. And I always think, like, that's why I respect uh, Blade, Deadpool. Mm. Uh, I, li I like anything that's brave enough to kind of differentiate from that. So yeah. I always say, like, that's what you get in superhero movies. If you've seen the 2006 um, Superman movie, yeah. natural disasters start um, taking over city. Millions should have died. Yeah. But he manages to just swoop in and literally save every single person. Yeah. And that's just kind of like where they... I know they throw caution to the wind and they just show you how amazing the amazing Spider-Man actually yeah. is and that was just a scene to showcase his actual power yeah and it was always going to be big I would have preferred a bit more gritty realism but then again it was a, it was a Spider-Man movie you know? yeah so it, it, since this movie was produced uh, pre-9-11 but it came out afterwards there was some changes to it and stuff we um, talked about earlier when we were watching the this. bridge scene again. The, the bridge scene like we're yeah, I know there was some cuts made with the uh, involving the the, tw the twin towers, the World Trade Center, and which of course, of on. course, you yeah. have you had to because like the way the world was at the time would have been just trounced in the media. But um, so you get this scene where it's very New York R one type scene, you know? Yeah, they start throwing. Got, like apparently there was an awful lot of garbage on that particular. Yeah, well, it's New York, so yeah, probably yeah, you know. They start if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Yeah. And it was it was a kumbaya time in America, yeah. just like it is today. Those guys are getting along great. Oh yeah, of course. And uh, and uh, 
yeah, it was just it was very much so like you know they they should have just had an American flag like you know at full mast yeah, in the background half mast yeah, half mast half so mast you know what I mean yeah. like you know so I know it was a literally unnecessary kumbaya moment where yeah. like you know the the word the Spider Man gets to be seen as the hero finally yeah. by at least some people I, I think that's a matter of perspective though for us because we're Irish so for Americans that scene probably was a home run you know oh, what yeah. I mean? especially oh, in the wake of yeah. what just happened so I think it was a very like the problem with that scene was like Spider Man's relatable to everyone, but that was a very New York. I probably moment, thought it was a know? very nice moment myself when mm. I was watching it because that the ripple effect of that was felt completely around the globe, mm. and it probably was. Now we kind of looking back at it, and I guess the, the cynicism that comes with time. Yeah, it just felt unnecessary. And for me, like a film is a film. I I, I don't like when a film tries to get very preachy with the outside yeah, world sometimes you know like mm. gets George, gets Orwellian and yeah. it's done really well and it's got a bigger bigger message yeah. but I don't like when they just work it into the dialogue of kind of like tertiary not even I, I don't even know what you would call these characters they're very much so one scene characters yeah. guy with bar yeah. just, <laughs> you mess with one of us you mess with all of us yeah. Yeah. and it's like when Rocky beats the Russian you know you can change you can change and then everyone gets up and starts applauding and he basically like fixed the US SSR or something like that. <laughs> so so after that scene, so New York saves Spider-Man like he has saved them on many occasions, which is kind of poetic. So he drops the cable car on a passing by ship or something, and then he saves Mary Jane. And now we're into the climax of the movie. We're into the final sequence where you finally have your protagonist, antagonist, Julian out in the ruins of this in this building or something. And what do you think of that that scene? Like I think that might be like I love these personal one-on-one scenes when you have the a character that is the pure antithesis of another yeah. character. And like William Defoe played that scene brilliantly. And the the part you pointed out to me when we watched it was the grenade going off in Spider-Man's face only doing damage to his suit was yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. One little cut, because like, that's what a grenade does when it goes off in your face. I, 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 I mess up your mask. Was it that. the same grenade that disintegrated all the executives on the balcony? I, I, or? That grenade, I didn't really know what that grenade was because it literally disintegrated. Like, they became skeletons and then they became nothing. Yeah. So I, I honestly don't know. They seemed like more like a fragment grenade. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very strange. It, it was the, the climax. I like the fact that the climax, sometimes like superheroes go films, they go too big. Yeah. I liked when it just kind of got down to the grit of like I prefer everyone preferred when Neo in the Matrix fought Agent Smith in the subway yeah. versus the second one where he fought hundreds of them yeah. when he was at full power and you were just no that just the grittiness of just a one and one fight and then the big reveal is where Peter Parker finally finds out that Norman Osborn is the Green Goblin and that he's has inner conflict yeah. that. and what is, <clears throat> that payoff is incredible I think it's that one of the best moments in the movie absolutely yeah. so, so in, in this in this instant he he literally he was the uh, the whole thing that coloured his life and personality was the fact that he felt responsibility for his only father figure that he knew for most of his life was Ben Parker and now when you get to the climax he's going to be responsible for the death of another father figure and like literally this must be very traumatic for Peter Parker as a character because like Literally, when you go to the the funeral sequence, Norman Osborn's uh, funeral, you see that he doesn't want any more attachments. He feels that his life, the way he lives it, is too risky to have personal attachments. And like, I think the reason Spider-Man Part 1 stands so well as an Origins movie, because it covers all these grounds. Like, Aunt May gets attacked, Mary Jane gets attacked. Like, he, he has to... He doesn't kill Norman Osborn. Norman Osborn kills They do himself. the exact same thing they did with the, exactly. with the Robert. The, yeah. And that's because you need to keep Spider-Man pure. And that's all you have to keep pristine, yeah. But, that, mm. but then, and I told you, the best way to get killed in a film, Ra's al Ghul yeah. knew that, that um, Christian Bale's... You kill him through in action. Kill him through in action. 
or even like like um, Spider Man killed Norman Osborn through self preservation, mm. and Norman Osborn killed himself through myopic vengeance. Yeah, you know, trying to kill Peter Parker. So they literally keep the character pure. They keep his identity hidden. Yeah, and yeah, they they they, they cross the T's and dot the I's with it. But I thought it was an excellent scene. I thought it was really well handled. And again, for the purity of a character like Spider Man, I thought they managed to kill off the um, antagonist. And leave him kind of squeaky clean, you know. Even even when he wins and he's died, he's not he's not uh, celebratory about it at all. Yeah, and it's a very dark thing for him. Even the fact that Norman Osborn tried to kill him and kill the ones he's loved, he actually looks after him in the end. He obviously changed him, which must have been awkward, into his pajamas or whatever, and he puts him, he lays him out on his settee or whatever in his home, and then James Franco, uh, Harry walks in and sees Spider Man, and he believes that Spider Man has killed his father and. And dressed him and brought him. Yeah, back which is uh, you know, yeah. which which must be weird. I actually never even thought about that that he must have actually undressed him and redressed him until there now. But um, like they laid the groundwork for a sequel in that one moment. Because, they very much so did. Yeah. yeah. And do you think like, see the problem with like James Franco as Harry? Do you think he's strong enough to be a Green Goblin? No, and it's the reason he ultimately the never I think became mm. the. I I I was sure that he was going to be the the main um, antagonist in the second film when it was going to come out. Oh, they cut they couldn't though because it would have been too repetitive. It would have yeah. been. That's what I was thinking in my mm. head. But they set it up so perfectly for it to be that. Mm. You know, because he had this access to the same technologies and stuff like that. Um, but um, I was glad that they didn't. Again, Harry was quite hapless through the film, and yeah. then he loses his dad, so he's hapless and broken. Yeah. And yeah, the character never really did much again for me after that. But it's, again, it's not a slight of James Franco. I think that's what the character needed to be. It's kind for of like Spider Man universe. To the work reversal of Peter Parker. Peter Parker lost. He never, he had this unrequited love with Mary Jane at the start and then he lost his father figure. And at the end, Harry loses his love in Mary Jane and then he loses his father figure. Yep. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like the same two things create these opposing ends of the spectrum in terms of the two characters. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, um, do you, like, before we start on the next section, do you want to take a quick break? Yes. Yeah. Pretend you're Spider-Man. Your mission, to rescue your friend high above. A job for your Spider-Man web shooter. Flip your secret wristband, take aim, and down slides your man to safety. But wait, there go the bad guys. Reload, take aim, shoot, zap, got him, bring him in. The Spider-Man web shooter supports the weight of toys only, doll and truck not included. Buy fun stuff. Alright everybody, welcome back from the break. Um, I'm Vincent Green and this is Spider-Fan. So first of all, we broke down the movie, went through chronologically, we talked about what we liked and how our initial aspect, our initial uh, opinions of the movies and maybe have changed over time. And um, so now I'm going to sit Noel John into director's chairs, like an armchair director if you will, like I'm going to ask you if you were in control of the movie instead of Sam Raimi, what aspects of the movie you would have changed. And I'm going to just throw a few little kind of topics out yeah just so you're not like shooting into the dark you know so um first of all so you would you have cast Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker given the talent that was available to you in 2002 you, you, we can't throw modern day actors into the past and say that we would have liked them because 
that's just wishful thinking. Um, so when you look back in 2002, do you think there was anybody else off the top of your head that you think would have suited Peter Parker on the role of Spider-Man better than Tobey Maguire? Are you happy with him? Several of them. <laughs> As you can see, I'm dumbfounded. Yeah. <laughs> you know, see, that's the thing. It's hard. It's hard to look back on the lens of, of who was kind of floating around in 2002. I mean, I always think of something like that. Like, what did he do when he got auditioned that impressed so much? Because sometimes, like, the, I always think of like Robert Patrick. Yeah. Uh, when he was got the T1000 job, like, I mean, he was literally a struggling actor, and he was there. He was in a James Cameron epic, mm. and uh, he said it was a look in his eye. Yeah, he was very was, reptilian. Yeah, there was a reptile. There was just kind of a, and a, 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 not that it wasn't human, but not that it was disconnect mm. that he had. James Cameron was, I just love it. I can't get it up. And he didn't have the, what we were used to at the time was everybody was buff. Everybody was good. Like you had Jean-Claude Van Damme's. That's mm. what superhero, uh, sorry, that was what action heroes looked yeah, like. Yeah, fresh out. And Robert Patrick was just this kind of no, completely normal looking dude. Mm. So I always think like that essentially, whoever showed up and did it and I would always think that if I was in the chair I wouldn't go in with too many preconceived notions bar perhaps a young a young white male you know that, yeah. that's it because that's what was in the comic books and then just see who can show up and if Toby Maguire they obviously Sam Raimi got it right because I really loved them in the role but would I have picked them of course I wouldn't I'd never seen the guy before um, and I don't obviously he had never done a superhero film before yeah. and he was in his early 20s you know what I mean yeah. like he probably would have given it to somebody who was massive at the time like Leo DiCaprio or something like that but I, God I, I really really I'm struggling to go back and think of the young you, males that were lighting up the cinema at the time because even Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and guys like that yeah. who were huge actors they were still even back then a bit long in the tooth so do you think like it's better to cast an every man in this kind of role? And Always cast mm. I sometimes I see films and they're uh, they're completely animated. So they and they spend like whatever amount of millions getting in the absolute biggest talent in the world to do the voices. And I always think I don't care. Yeah. Like sometimes just great by like Seth MacFarlane does like a lot of he's a great voice actor. Yeah. Trey Parker of South Park is is a great voice actor. And I, I when you get them into roles, they make it role. They're just brilliant. Yeah. But then some people are just like good actors. They make them voice actors, and you just think I don't care. I do not care. Give me the everyman and make a good film. It's kind of like um slightly off topic, but it's like War of the Worlds. Tom Cruise playing the everyman father was a bit. It's hard to kind of digest because he's a megastar. Like mega mega star, like a mega mega star. Exactly. Like it's like the reason. Like I think Tobey Maguire was probably at that time probably maybe the best person for the part because his contemporaries were, as you mentioned, like Leonardo DiCaprio, and Leonardo DiCaprio has been a mega star, so it's hard to look past Leo and see Peter Parker. You know exactly, kind of, yeah. Hmm. Because you you had the kind of guy that I don't know. I when when I pictured him as a guy, he was just trying to sell again the most amazing pictures ever taken. <laughs> And like for two hundred dollars, and then he manages to like stick it out and get three hundred dollars for something that would get on the cover of Time magazine, <laughs> like you know, um, that that I could buy that because Toby Toby Maguire, I literally just heard his name. I remember there was a film that he's in, and I think he hurt himself in a um, horse riding accident. Mm. And the, 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 yeah, was that was was that what it yeah, was? Yeah, it was Seabiscuit. That was before Spider Man Two. Yeah, I was before Spider. Mm. I was in between films then because Jake uh, Gyllenhaal nearly. Played Peter Parker in Spider Man Two because oh, he was a bad guy in the most recent. Yeah, Spider-Man. he played Mysterio. He played Mysterio, um, but no, I I like that. And I honestly, I don't I don't like the monopoly that mm. a lot of actors have. 
So when it broke away from that, yes, William Dafoe was a big actor, but he didn't have a monopoly. Yeah, he would be like an A-lister. Like, yeah, yeah, and Kirsten Dunst was obviously, she blew up because of Interview with a Vampire as well she should have. But I wouldn't have called her a monopoly either. And it's like you say, today it would probably be like Scarlett Johansson and it would be like, you know, they'd have to work in um, Samuel L. Jackson in there somewhere because it's illegal not to make films with him. <laughs> and I just, I don't care. I don't, I, I, sometimes they're not even the best actors. They're just the names. Yeah. And that's it. It's almost like, uh, it's almost having a jersey that's lovely and it's comfortable. And then there's having a jersey with a correct mark on it. And you're yeah. like, oh, well, that's, that's worth something. Yeah, now. you like, want to be able to see the character past the actor. Yeah, just, mm. and that's a, Tom Holland, like, new Spider-Man, fair play to him too, because yeah. he just burst onto the scene and now he burst onto the scene for me as Spider-Man. And if, or, if you can go from, you can actually go from superhero into normal. Yeah. It's very go hard to go from normal into superhero. Like, Hugh Jackman mm. has done a lot of serious roles yeah. since Wolverine and a lot of, like, Robert Downey Jr. has done, like, Sherlock Holmes and yeah. stuff since Iron Man and Chris Evans has gone into a lot of new films as well and that's fine but you need to you just need to be able to see beyond the actor and I could see beyond Tobey Maguire because I personally didn't even really know who he was I yeah. admit that you know so we covered Tobey Maguire so like you're happy with Tobey as uh, the Peter Parker slash yeah. Spider-Man he was role. a little bit old he was 26 and, uh, and they, they could have used a kid but. yeah but everybody knows what well, Hollywood back in the 90s 2000s they were, they were very very guilty of using people that were much older than the characters to portray and um, so we have Tobey Maguire there and Playing opposite him is such an important character to not just Spider-Man and Peter Parker, but to the whole mythos of the whole, like, Spider-Man mythos is his love interest from as being a kid to now is Mary Jane Watson. And she was portrayed by Kirsten Dunst, as you mentioned, who was a star that had well and truly had come to our attention because of the interview with the vampire. and Youngest like, woman, perhaps, to win an Oscar? Was um, she at the time, at least? Maybe I'm not sure. Like uh, I don't want to throw out false falsehoods off the top. Yeah, no. So, sorry, that that's an impression. Yeah. I'm wondering if I'm wrong. I'm sure I get corrected. What was that one from the piano? Is no? Was there a young girl in that or something? There was. Uh, um, anywho, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, right. Uh, so we've, we've covered that other films exist. Yeah, we could, and that we don't know much about them. We, we both understand that we're not big piano fans. So uh, <laughs> so we're gonna just drop it. So you so have, stop asking us. <laughs> never. We have to get to the crutch of this. But uh, do, do you do you happy with her portrayal as uh, Mary Jane? Because we kind of touched on it earlier, but I kind of want to focus on it more. Absolutely, like I always think, if you want to be kind of a film buff, a film fan, you have to understand that the constraints that an actor is working within. Yeah. So, like, you could say, "Oh, I wish Mary Jane Watson when she got jumped by." Like what four or five minutes? Was it was it just three? Yeah, I think so. But, uh, maybe more. I'm I sorry. think I think might be at least four. But anyway, she she kicked one. She kicked one where it hurts. I think she slapped one or the other way around. In the and then, notes. then she then she got you know overwhelmed. The Spider Man showed up and saved the day. Hmm. And so I could have said, Oh God, I wish she had like you know new Crab McGann and taken out at least like two of them. And you're like, No, that's that wasn't the character. So you think she was kind of hamstrung by the tropes of her era? Absolutely, yeah. she was. And there's nothing. There's I don't actually have a slight against the woman because it probably just was a quite atypical hapless female yeah, yeah. Like, like I mean there was a Supergirl movie before that it was awful and then but like you know that's what women were women were the, the love interests yeah it was before the Me Too movement the hashtag feminism the real strong female characters like, yeah, I, well, I don't want to say it was before all uh, strong female characters because we had not, Ellen no, no, Ripley not, not by your long stretch, and Sarah Connor and fantastic portrayals of Linda Hamilton and, and Scorny Weaver respectively like so but 
you're right though like in that era women in a lot of these movies were portrayed as the dancing distress like we mentioned the the the, the live beat that's just pushed out by the antagonist to get the protagonist to come out into the open and like i think you're right like She's a fine actress with great range, and she was kind of literally limited by the role itself. Exactly, like, mm. and sometimes you have to just acknowledge that. Mm. Sometimes you have to like I I just don't like that. She read the script and went right. So I'll be sensitive. I'll be kind. I'll be maybe a bit misguided at times, and I'll be hapless at yeah. times. And and that's and then she did that because she's an actress. Yeah, and that was the role because she was cooking up. She had to use the ingredients. Exactly, she, she was given, you weren't yeah. allowed to. You weren't allowed to veer off and put your own spin on yeah. it. I'm sure maybe maybe in a couple of takes she did, but like, and they're not the ones. That yeah, because I think with the, the range she has, they could have put a lot more meat on the bones of that character. Oh, easily! Yeah. Oh my god, fantastic! Like they didn't like Kirsten Dunst is a beautiful woman. They didn't go for the bombshell. Uh, yeah, you know, because um, she's a natural beauty. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Almost like unattainable kind of. Woman yeah, the girl next door, but with a little bit of roughness to her. Uh, yeah, I mean? absolutely. And the best uh, Mina in the best way possible. And uh, she, but she was just yeah, she was like the every girl, and that was great because you grow up. It was the girl you had the crush on was the every girl. Yeah, exactly. Just the, just the girl you knew that was attractive, but you also just knew her, and she was. She you she know. was uh, right in the reach of attainability, but yet so unattainable at the same time. Exactly, and she mm. did that really, really well. And I, I I don't know. I think she worked with what she was given, and she she gets a tip of the cap from me, absolutely. So like, you can't have Pierre Park without Mary Jane and vice versa. Exactly. And um, I, I think she did the part to the best of her, not the best of her abilities. But to the best of the character's abilities given. She was a prop in many ways. Yeah, which was unfortunate, but it was uh, systematic of uh, of its era. But um, or sim- symptomatic of its era. Sorry, I should have said. But uh, so we got Peter Parker and we got Mary Jane. And you were happy with both those castings? Absolutely, I was. Yeah. And um, so next up, I'm going to do this as a little bit of a twofer because it's a father son duality too. So Harry no- Osborne and Norman Osborne. We got James Franco as Harry. Would you have cast him as that? Because he had very little credits to his name at the time. As you mentioned, he came on the backs of the Judd Apatow-led uh, Freaks and Geeks. Many cool actors came from that. Seth Rogen, Linda Car- Cardinelli, and never pronounced her name correctly. And um, She's in Dead to Me, is that that? that yeah, yeah I, thought, I thought that was like some strong opinion you had of her. She's dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what did she do to you? It, it lo- can be both. I'll always remember as Velma from Scooby-Doo. I love those movies. She was Velma in Scooby-Doo. Know, the yeah. only reason I had a child was so I could rewatch the Scooby-Doo movies. Nothing <laughs> guilty, and I'll say it to you. It was a bit extreme. A bit extreme, but I'm a man of extremes, you know. But um, so uh, we'll do the duality of the, the father-son dynamic they had. Like, I want to talk to you about the dynamic they shared on screen, and I want to talk to you about the cast that, sorry, the the actors that were cast in the roles of both. So first of all, we'll start with Harry because I think Norman's much more important. So we'll start with the lesser of the two. You happy with James Franco as Harry Osborne? I was, and again, I think I'd almost apply the same logic to it. The, the fact of the matter is, his thing is he couldn't know what was going on around him because it would spoil. The, the ultimate storyline. Mm, very true. He wasn't supposed to know what his father was really up to and he wasn't supposed to know that he's best friend. So he was literally that guy in the middle of it that can't pick up any of the clues. Peter been missing in action. His father been missing in action when all these things are going down. You know, he just was... He was... Uh, what, what, in, when Superman, it's the guy that takes... Jimmy? who takes Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. He's, you know, he's there. like He's kind of like enamoured with everything. Everything's kind of amazing to him and overwhelming to him. But he's not, he's not really picked... Uh, putting it all together and he's kind of a disappointment yeah. that's the thing he's a good kid a good heart makes bad decisions makes bad decisions and his father is such a titan of the industry yeah. that he's always trying he's so 
myopically focused on trying to impress him he, that he loses sight of almost everything else. He's a character that's constantly trying to get over other people's shadows. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then and then he never really accomplishes it. I don't think he was supposed to because it, it, it definitely, definitely wasn't the Harry Osborne movie. Yeah, because his defining moment came at the very end of the his film. His defining moment came at the very end of the film as almost a segue into the second film. Yeah, it was your your loose end that needed to be tied up with the sequels that yeah. followed. And the same way a death <coughs> can kind of inspire a character, like, you know, really solidify him, like I covered earlier, mm. I think it can also make another character more interesting. Because mm. all of a sudden he went from being like the guy trying to impress his dad and all this kind of stuff to being the guy with a vendetta. Mm. And a vendetta is a great thing in comic book films. It just is. So he, he literally just, he, he went up an entire grade just by the end of the film. And not by anything he did, just by his father dying. And like when his father died and he's seen Spider-Man leaving him there and he perceived that Spider-Man was the person who killed his father. And that kind of opened up, that kind of like lifted Harry out of one world and dropped him straight into Spider-Man's world right at the end of the film, preparing yeah. him for the sequels. And so you, you thought James Franco did a good, you wouldn't replace him. Oh, no, I wouldn't no. replace him at all. Because I like I mean any shortcomings he had he had as a character not as an actor. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I like what do you want me to do? I, I I didn't get to be Bruce Wayne and go training with you know in the Himalayan mountains yeah. or anything like that. That wasn't the character. He he needed, he kept things ticking along. Yeah, and that's what he was needed to for, stick with know? the food metaphors. He ate the meal that was served. With exactly. Him. Yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, we touched we touched on William Defoe earlier. I want to touch back on him. I think he was perfect for the oh, part. I think he was great, yeah. Mm, so, so I, I honestly couldn't, like, even thinking about it now, I couldn't see anybody else as the Green Goblin. Right? Especially retroactively. Mm. You know, looking back on it, going, oh, you know what would have been a good a good way to go. Yeah. And the same with Tobey Maguire. That's yeah. why I struggled on that. It's because he just he did a great job. So why would I go back? But at the time, yeah. I wasn't excited about it. He inhabited the character. Exactly. Yeah. But William Defoe needed, he needed a character that could do crazy. Mm. Jack Nicholson but not outlandishly but not outlandish yeah Yeah. exactly crazy book get something done yeah and uh, you know Jack Nicholson crazy with a purpose crazy with a purpose William Defoe he always just in the face sometimes he was Mm. such a such an intense and that's why he was so good in things like Platoon you could tell he had that thousand thousand yard stare that they always talked about do you think because of the rigidness of the costume that we lost some of the, not the appeal, but some of the strengths of William Defoe as Absolutely. A, a character. Absolutely. Well, I, I, again, looking at it in comic book, I don't really know if the mask that the Goblin wore was skin tight and that his expressions moved with the mask, but yeah. I would have loved it to be enough of a mask to, that you couldn't look and go, wait, this is like Norman Osborn, yeah. but enough that he's just, the, the intense because he has intense eyes and intense expressions. I would have loved it. I would have loved if they went almost pantomime on it because the whole thing, he was supposed to be a mockery. Yeah, he didn't care. It was like he wasn't trying to be fancy, top military, industrial complex kind of character. He just had the tech, and yeah. he wanted to use it. But he himself was again like a Joker character. So when he kind of came in in the all green, we touched on it earlier, like he had yeah. the six pack and stuff like that. I was like, nah. no, I didn't care for that. If you want to get, if you want to get the best out of William Defoe, then let him be William Defoe. That, yeah, I think that's the problem with um these kind of costumes, especially from that era, creating a disconnect between the audience and the character. Because when you got these real dramatic scenes, there's no emotion being portrayed in his face whatsoever. No, of course it's, not. It's all through his voice, and I think that's why the shoulders his eyes a lot, and the shoulders his mouth closed in on his mouth because he had this black kind of uh, visor, like a mesh yeah. mm. across the mouth, but you could still kind of see it. And he, you know, he had his eyes really wide gaze. You could tell he was trying to get the best out of it that was available to him, but it was limited. Of course, it was limited. Like again, my fiance Sheila said he looks like a Power Rangers bad guy. Yeah, and I was like, wow, I actually don't have a comeback. To that. Yeah, exactly. He was, ex- he and I wanted to defend him because I was yeah. so. It, the suit was extremely from its era. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah just extremely. 
And uh, I was expecting to get a Megazord or something to show up. So now now that we touched on William Defoe's portrayal of the Green Goblin, were you happy when you heard the Green Goblin was going to be the villain of the Spider-Man movie when it released? Yes. I I never, ever personally thought it was the Green Goblin as a uh, main... Like, when, after reading all the comics and stuff, I was Venom or Die. Yeah. Absolutely Venom or Die. And I thought they all had different aspects. Like, again, like, Doc Ock is always, like, a huge bad guy but I thought the Goblin is a great way to introduce him even just think about the power set he's great for aerial battles oh yeah in fact he has an advantage he can fly yeah. he can swing but he can fly the glider looked kind of cool the glider was yeah. kind of cool yeah so you, I think the power set like he was strong Spider-Man was strong he mm. was you know he was um, dexterous Spider-Man yeah. was dexterous but he wasn't he wasn't above like blowing up some passerbys just to get the advantage in a fight. I thought so. I thought the skill set. And again, when, when I was looking at the big picture, I knew the Spider Man universe was hopefully going to take off. Yeah. I thought Goblin was a great place to start. I thought Venom would have been ambitious. You can't just have yeah. Spider because you can't have the, the film where Spider Man gets his powers and gets the yeah, Venom. Yeah, Venom's always been much later on. Exactly. Yeah. Venom is an established Spider Man yeah. bad guy. He just by design because a lot of Venom's power set comes from being a part of yeah, Peter Parker. Because of the symbiote's relationship exactly, with Peter Parker. Yeah, so you just couldn't do it. And Carnage, mm. of course, would be a step further than that again. Mm. So they were the ones I loved. I like Craven. I like Mysterios. I love Doc Ock. Do, do you, but I, I think it was a great place to start. Do you think the reason Green Goblin was picked? Because you have this trifecta of Harry, Peter, and Norman. And they're really deep characters that are intertwined throughout their lives. And you got this father son relationship and you got this jilted father son relationship and it's all combined and all contained within this one character Norman Osborn and his relationship with other characters or do you think the reason he was picked because technology was slightly limited even though it was progressing quickly and the reason they picked him was because he was more attainable or more doable of a character compared to the ones carnage and stuff like that well that's it yeah he was Peter Parker having a best friend and his best friend was always going to be uh, Harry yeah then you're obviously Harry has a dad and he needs to be either referenced or in it. And then you're like, what is he just not doing anything? Yeah. He's too, he's too big a character to have allude to, but not use. You need an appetizer. Exactly. At the end of the first Christian Bale Batman, Batman begins, they had the Joker card. Yeah. He said, oh, that the, the crime scene, a card is left. And that was just at the, literally the tail end of the film, a teaser, an absolute, just a teaser. But um, Norman would have existed entirety of the film and the, the fan base might be thinking are, are they gonna are they leaning towards it is there something going on here it would have been if they ignored it completely it yeah. would have been kind of confusing so it was a good place to start because they can easily place him in early peter parker's life yeah. and he's a great source of conflict between harry and peter the further you go down the road exactly well, like, you know because you look at doc ock and doc ock was a scientist that peter looked up to but not, like, there wasn't like a childhood Ref. It wasn't yeah. a person that he looked up to. It wasn't a person that mentored him. That was never his story. So that was definitely more for an established Spider-Man universe. And that's why he paid Harry uh, or Norman Osborn the respect he he felt he deserved at the end by one not telling uh, uh not telling Harry who dying wish that he yeah he respected his dying wish. He didn't allow him to be captured in the Goblin costume and which. I wonder what he did with that in the glider, which is kind of strange. But um, never touched upon. Yeah, again. they never touched upon it, which is kind of strange. But like he really paid Norman the respect he believed he deserved, even though he committed these atrocities against yeah. uh, me, me, uh, um, MJ, and in the innocent bystanders on the bridge near the climax. And um, so, do you think that because of that, because of the way these characters are intertwined, it was the perfect way to start this maybe burgeoning trilogy or whatever. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, it's exactly what I think. Again, because he could be introduced early into Peter Parker's 
life and then you could have his story start almost at the same time and that felt fairly even handed yeah you know he had again there was all this cutting edge technology coming through he was in the military side of it and I don't really understand what the Spider-Man thing was in the Spider-Man side of it you yeah. know we were making red and blue spiders that can escape their they can escape their inhabitants. Yeah, yeah genetically modified. I, I, uh, just to digress, just to jump back forwards, but I love in that scene how laissez faire she is. Oh, so someone must be just uh, examining it or testing it, and that's exactly why that spider got out of that enclosure because they they didn't care about the jobs in that museum as far as I yeah. can tell. You know what I mean? They're just yeah. like there's a super spider on the loose. Ah, it's grand. Some there's always some prick it. along the way. Yeah. Just job, like, you know? So. You were happy with the casting for the most part. I was, but that, the, the proof was in the pudding for me. Like you know, you look back on it and go, "Yeah, well done." Yeah, you know, I, I don't know to go back in time. Toby McGuire would have been on my radar. James Franco would have, to some degree. Yeah, uh, William Defoe was just establishing great, and I definitely would have cast it, him. It, it looked like Sam Raimi was really focusing on character actors. You know, like. Tobey Maguire on the back of I think maybe Cider House Rules or something like that at that stage where he played uh, across from Michael Caine who's a world class actor held his ground he had this range and he had James Franco who has a range of, uh, as an actor but not to the same extent as he's William aloof Ford. he's always aloof in yeah. a way yeah. he, he lacks um, not believability but he seems to lack commitment to the role that the other characters I've seen no in intensity I've never mm. I've, I've seen him in Milk and I've seen him in uh God, I've seen him in a couple of things. What were the other films? Like he did a great disaster, the disaster artist. He was actually really good in, mm. but it suited him. He plays Tommy Wiseau or something like that. Yeah, he plays Tommy Wiseau the, and stuff like that. But again, there's he doesn't have that like he Jesus like not that anybody is, but he doesn't have that Al Pacino yeah. absolutely owning the room he's in. Kind yeah. Of. Power and, and in fairness to James Franco, Al Pacino is not Al Pacino anymore either. Yeah, but well, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean. So but I, not that, and I wasn't expecting that. But if you, if you compare them to J. Jonah James, my God, like that man. Yeah, oh. that is, I think, the most perfect casting of any superhero movie. You can say what you want about what, what happened further down the road, MCU, whatever characters have in the roles. But I think J. Jonah Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons from films like Whiplash and the TV show Oz and stuff yeah, like he was that. Yeah, great in Oz, the neo Nazi. Yeah, he, he's he's an incredibly strong actor with a great wealth of uh, talents, and I think he really stole the role. That maybe he should have been given a bit more meat to the part. He did well with what he was given, and um, so like we covered all the casting, and you were happy with the casting, and. And I, you made some really good and interesting arguments for why you were happy with the casting. But I, I know we touched on it a little bit earlier about the suit. Like, the Spider-Man suit, I have to say, it was one of the best live-action interpretations of the superhero oh, suit I've ever seen. Even after nearly 20 years, two decades on, Spider-Man suit looks incredible still, which is something I was actually kind of surprised by. Hmm. It's one of the most faithful adap uh, adaptations of a suit, or the aesthetics of a suit, or whatever that you want to say from a superhero point of view. And um, it looked incredible then. And I think it's aged really well. What it's think? aged really well, and it's great that you can just whip it together with things you find around the house. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that might have been even more unbelievable than the fact that he got bit by a spider. <laughs> yeah, I got the fact that it, it maybe should have explained how he got these things, like um, really detailed, yeah, like super detailed spider suit. And um, with like a mesh over it, yeah, you know? and, and like the eyes and so the the material it's made from. The fact that it could take a full-on grenade blast to the face with minimal... Like, when you're talking about grenade damage, it was minimal damage. It's like a little bit of blood and the mask was like 50% destroyed. Yeah, so we, God knows what he meant that suit of, but it was <laughs> definitely worth its money, whatever he spent on it. And so one thing that I, I nearly forgot about that I want to jump on is the fact that 
Peter Parker in this iteration as Spider-Man did not use web carriages. Yeah, they, 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 and it wasn't until later in the comics that Spider-Man's kind of biology changed and the, 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 the webs became internal. Yeah. Uh, I think it was actually against a fight with Iron Man during the Civil War era and he just lets loose and then ties him up enough to get away. But... um. Yeah, I, I think it was I think it was a bold thing. I don't think I would have done it to be honest, because I think they established Spider Man uh, that Peter Parker is a very bright kid. Yeah, and also he has friends in the scientific community, yeah. so he might have been able to work in that he has access to certain like you know facilities or something like that. The way they did in the Spider Mans that we know now followed, but um, I think he just said, you know what, the hell with it. Let's just go, you know, let's just go hell for leather and make it just one less thing to worry about and also one less thing to explain. Because yeah. the pacing of the film was very good. But my, my opinion on that would be when you watch the cartoons when you're growing up or read the comic books, the fact that he can run out of the webs adds an extra layer of danger or Absolutely. weakness. You know what I mean? If I can shoot these out of my wrists willy-nilly or whatever, I don't have to be strategic in how I use my webs in combat. No. You know what I mean? And I think one of the things is you you mentioned that he's a bright boy, Peter Parker. He's a genius. He's a boy genius. They never touched on the genius thing. Yeah, well, they mentioned clever, once, but never genius. Just in the opening where Harry kind of says it, he go, he says something like, Peter says, your father's not that bad. And Harry goes, well, if you're a genius. And they kind of touch on it there. But... The fact that they made the webs organic, I think, took away from the aspect of how intelligent Peter Parker is for his age, that he's able to manufacture this web, control and make these carriages. And, oh, and, and it has the tensile strength of steel or something. Yeah, like exactly. That. Like, yeah, you know, of course. Like, like, and I think when you take that character, you take that aspect away from the character, it does take a bit away because, as I mentioned, it does have an added danger and he does have to think a bit more how he uses his webs. How he deploys them in battle and stuff like and that. When he can change them, almost like somebody, like like uh, like the war scene where somebody's like cover for me, reload that sort of thing. Yeah, it exactly. adds to the intensity that this this fight cannot be maintained indefinitely. Yeah, we're going to run out of ammo. You know, like even just the sitting here doing nothing is dangerous. Yeah. So yeah, no, of course he, he and he never like if you. Uh, I didn't really want to jump to the other films, but I feel like I have to mention the yeah. the uh, runaway train in the second film. And yeah. he ends. He has shoot web, 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 yeah, pulling buildings apart. Yeah, it's too oh, much. And it's, it was excessive. Yeah, it was definitely. De- and then he, for some reason, he was able to shoot them as bullets. Yeah, because people have to remember, like whatever you say about Peter Parker and Spider Man, he's the thinking man superhero in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. He, he's the boy genius, like we touched on, and like he's constantly strategizing. And if you take away this one real element of danger, it's like it'd be like not all oh, to not not to the same kind of sense of. Of taking kryptonite away from Superman, but like you need, I think, to make these superhero movies really compelling, you need as much danger as possible because Absolutely. they are superhuman. And you take away this element that makes them a little bit more human, I think you take away from the overall narrative. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was a gadget that kind of added to his power set because if you looked at the the, the what the spider was for, like they had the spidey sense, they had the strength, yeah. and they had the agility. Yeah. And it was just an incredible combination for close quarter combat. And then they had the webbing to kind of like. Basically, made them mobile, but the webbing kind of became everything. He could just he could make enough webbing in a second to stop a, a taxi that's after yeah. getting launched fifty feet into the air. So yeah, no, I completely agree. I wouldn't have, and I even thought at the time, despite being quite young, is that yeah. I wouldn't have gone organic because that's yeah. not the way it was in the cartoon which I loved or the comics that I read. In fact, it, he was trying to make like stronger. I remember at some comics where he's trying to make stronger or even more sticky because again he was the yeah. the thinking man. He was like to fight Doc Ock, I'd have to immobilize him. Yeah, exactly. To gain close to him because yeah. I'm not as strong as him. I'm not as strong as 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 he potentially is. Yeah. Because one of Peter Parker's greatest strengths is his mind. Yeah. 
Like, Venom was an imp- that's like I mean, they, Venom really brought that out in him because Venom was every aspect of Peter Parker improved. Yeah. So he had to play to his weaknesses, fire and sound. Yeah, exactly. And because Venom had Venom had biological webbing, Venom was stronger. Spider Man sensed it and work on him. Yeah, he literally played, it. and that's why I love him <laughs> so much. It's not just because I love Venom that I do. Yeah, but it's because he brought out the best in Spider Man. Yeah, he's the other end of the spectrum. The Spider Man like that comes from. Like, yeah, you know, he's like the Hulk Spider Man. You know yeah, what I mean? exactly. He's stronger and he's faster and he's definitely a lot more intimidating. He's and like Spider Man's the clean athlete. Venom's the one on steroids. Yeah, he's he's, he's uh, Armstrong, you know, at the whole. <laughs> Live strong people. So um, yeah, no, I wouldn't have gone biological webbing, but like they did, and they they they, st- they did, and they stuck with it. And that's fine. But looking back on it, I would have preferred. Yeah, it's lazy storytelling. Yeah, it's lazy storytelling. It's a device that could have been used to benefit the story. But it's, I think Sam Raimi might have looked at it. And as you said, like he, he probably thought that it would be too complicated to explain. Yeah, yeah and again. You know, how he created the web. And even though, and I didn't want to jump ahead myself, but even though when you look at the MCU, they explain it in like a sentence. I made it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, Andrew Garfield goes to the man goes to like no Tom Holland. Tom, no, yeah. I was thinking about Andrew or Garfield, the, the guy who becomes the lizard, was explaining. Doc to him, he goes like, "How would you come up with all this?" And he literally just taps the side of his own head with a pen. Yeah, literally just goes taps his own he head. Does, yeah. it. it was all up here, and that's it. Yeah. It's been explained exactly. It's like, it's like there's enough of background source material and all this stuff that we can literally go. I know how we met it. Whether or not you have a like a technical um idea of how we met it, it's not really that important. You just need to know that he met it himself in isolation yeah. and then that's all that you really need to know even the fact that, that, that famously the Spider-Man thing that the webs were always supposed to dissolve in an hour yeah exactly which means no trace what, what, what was what was Tobey Maguire's doing because if that's just normal webbing he's literally just making the city filthy yeah I, like, I don't know how he cleaned up his bedroom before he went down before Aunt May went up that's there a really good point because Tom Holland when he stuck uh, Tony Stark's hand to the door he, uh, he had a dissolvent. Yeah, exactly. You know right. what I mean? I think it's the best way to do it too because like, if you're leaving this web all over the place, you're leaving loads of forensic um, evidence for cops and shit. Yeah, like absolutely. Tons of it. It came literally from you as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's probably definitely going to have your DNA on it actually. And then, you know, when Tom Holland got to mix with Tony Stark, they were able to bring technology into it and he was able to like, you know, the suit was kind of, uh, it was a smart suit and he was able to make like webbing that shot in all directions and pulled everyone in or whatever yeah. like you know or bullet webbing and stuff and they were able really to have fun with the genius tech of it yeah because he is a genius that's yeah. the thing like, like like he can be super strong and super agile and he can sling webs and stuff but like Peter Parker is a genius he uses his mind in your Garfield area. touched upon that more than yeah that. I thought like without jumping but like Garfield wasn't uh, excellent Peter Parker he was really was he was an excellent Peter Parker and excellent Spider-Man he looked great in the suit and everything like so like so we covered the suits and we covered the web and stuff like that so if you come down to it do you think that the best thing about this movie compared to maybe the sequence is that it only had one villain oh my god yes and, I, and the second film brilliant one villain and the third film just went off the rails trying yeah. to square. That's the thing about pacing. Like we could say they should have explored this and whatever. It's a criticism. And it's not a mean spirited one. Yeah. But you literally have ninety to a hundred minutes, mm. and there's a lot you have to get into it. And I'm sure a lot of it ends up in the editing room floor. For all we know, it was filmed. But my God, like the, the too many chefs biting the broth. I've never seen it as exemplified. Give it was as, and it's where Superman the 2006 film failed. It didn't give Superman anyone to punch. 
Yeah, he just made him fight a continent of kryptonite. Was a continent weird. of kryptonite, you yeah, know? Kind of they didn't, he needed someone to punch. That's what su- every superhero film has someone for them to punch. Do you punch. think they should have had, like, Kevin Spacey sexually harass Superman, maybe? Like? Yeah, a little bit more <laughs> fit in his character, yeah. as we found out. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Rapey, if anyone's listening. Um, Allegedly. But, uh, but nice. Yeah, so so we, we covered pretty much every aspect of this film now, and we're, we're kind of coming up to the end. So I want to ask you, before we go... Um, what do you think? Now, I want you to think about it for a second, but don't think about it too long. I want it to be a gut instinct because this is how you know if someone really feels this. What do you think was the best aspect? If you were to take out one singular aspect of the entire Spider-Man experience, what do you think was the best aspect of this movie in its totality? Just one aspect. I don't need I don't need to branch out too much. Gut instinct. Right oh, now, go. Well, okay. I'll just go off gut instinct. And that's the fact that he got all these powers and it didn't fix them. Yeah. Because when you're a kid, all you know is it would be so incredibly cool if you could climb up a wall, mm. you know, if you could jump 50 feet from a standstill. But it didn't fix him. In fact, yeah. it, it and as cool as it was, and he definitely enjoyed it at times, yeah. but it added so many complex layers to his life, but people in his life in danger. It's the fact that it didn't, he's not a dark character like Batman, but they just handled it well that he still kind of had these struggles. If anything... Uh, he had more to fit in a day. So it's kind of like, even though as Spider-Man, he was soaring amongst the top of the skyscrapers, he stayed very grounded as Peter Parker. Cause, yeah, because he had to. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he, they didn't, he wasn't the billionaire playboy by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. In fact, he was still a bit awkward and yeah. nerdy and stuff like that because it didn't. It doesn't change it in that aspect. It didn't make him suave and cool. Um, so I just thought that groundedness, I thought the fact that he still had bad luck, yeah. I thought the fact that things didn't work out for him in a very kind of normal, grounded level, the mm. fact that he didn't get to hook up with MJ at the end because he just couldn't place Butler in danger, and it was yeah. actually a downside. That, that was a beautiful end, and I thought exactly. that it showed the purity of the character in that current, in that clutch moment that he, this is, this is Ben Parker in his head again. Great power comes great responsibility. You have this great power, you can't be just a yeah. normal dude you have to look out for the ones you love and sometimes by doing the only way you can look after the ones you love is by pushing them away yeah because if you fight them they're going to fight back yeah exactly and you can't put anyone else but me and you just normal just soaps we can look and go god how cool would that be but you also we don't have to invite yeah you know if somebody points a gun at us or something we just have to get out of that situation alive that's all that's the only emphasis but with him it's like i can do something yeah, and the one time he didn't do something, and I, he, it cost him so much. So I just thought they did that; they handled that really well. It's one aspect of it I just don't have. Any yeah, they kept him very relatable throughout the whole film. I think, like, like literally, even though he was catching cable cars and all this, but he was making these very human decisions in a moment where the one I love are these people that are just purely innocent that are being caught up in my life. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So the whole way through it, I think they kept him very relatable and that's probably is the best aspect of the movie yeah. and the character himself from the source material is one of the most relatable superheroes. So we covered what you, you thought was the best aspect of the movie. What do you think was the worst aspect of the entire movie? I think, like, again... I don't go back on anything I said about, about characters just playing to the script that they were given. There was just a, a lot of these characters that were wedged in mm. to kind of like, oh, he needs, he needs, well, this is Spider-Man. He has an aunt, he has a dead uncle, he has a love interest, and he has a friend. And uh, they kind of didn't branch out in them. Like, again, it's a slight against the screenplay more than it's a slight against the characters because they worked with what they were given. But it would have been nice if 
Harry just wasn't so myopically trying to look for his father's approval. Yeah. And if Mary Jane wasn't just a you know a, a, a doughy eyed woman who kind of keeps getting in trouble, who mm. doesn't know where her affections really lie, there was this kind of very one dimensionalness to them, which kind of works to elevate Peter Parker. Yeah. But didn't do anything to elevate the people around him. Because he seemed like universe. a unique person amongst generic types. Exactly. The yeah. only person who should have been one dimensional was kind of J. Jonah Jameson because he's hilarious. Yeah. You know, I mean, he just like just a guy who lives, breathes, and eventually he's going to have a heart attack and die. Yeah. In the Daily Bugle, the whiskey on the desk, the, the whiskey, cigar on, the whiskey the on the desk, cigar in the mouth. You know, yeah. tie open and stuff mm. like that. Like that was the only guy that should have won the match because of how great that his, his last was. words were like, "Get me Spider Man." <laughs> yeah. But uh, but like I, yeah, so I thought some of the characters around him could have been could have been uh, fleshed out more. Yeah. But I do not, I, I, I point out that I do not at all slight the actors. And I do have to respect the fact that it's hard to get it all into 90 minutes. Yeah. And it's, you know what I mean? It's easy to talk the talk. Yeah, I think uh, it probably was hamstrung by its time that way because a lot of secondary characters were just that. They were secondary. They yeah. were just used as plot devices. We're here to see Spider-Man. You know what I mean? When you look at further superhero movies down the line that these secondary characters were actually given a bit of meat on their bones and it, the movies benefited greatly from it because you got this rich history of Harry Osborn and you got this rich history of Spider-Man and Peter Parker's relationship with Mary Jane that was only kind of touched on but I expect it's probably why it was touched on is because it's an origin movie you know it is the first chapter in a greater narrative like so you can't really fault them for that but the script is a bit corny at times and there's a few action set pieces that are kind of a bit like overdone or undercooked like but it was it was kind of like it, it had the the thing the only thing it could do was go with the technology it had at the time and it was state of the art and was cutting edge for its time but certain aspects of the movie in that sense the tropes and special effects and stuff haven't really aged as well as we thought it would but um so like you think the the, the casting was the best uh, aspect of it, like you and you thought the worst aspect of was the way it kind of limited. Uh, oh, the best the aspect was the, the groundedness of your part. Yeah, the yeah, groundedness, you know, just the world. And yeah, the worst aspect was they could have fleshed out characters around it. But again, it was called the the Amazing Spider Man. You know, yeah. I do get that. And it really did do a good job on Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Yeah. But yeah, I would have liked the characters around him. Uh, like, I put it to you this way. Sometimes when the characters around him were on screen without Peter Parker, yeah. it, was, it was a slog. Yeah. You know, when Norman and Harry were having a little bit of a tiff and then Mary Jane got annoyed. And but once again, that's the limitations of the script, not it's the It's the limitations yeah. of the script and not the actors. But I just mm. found like, okay, when can we get back to Peter Parker trying to balance life and a secret identity yeah. and superpowers? You know, I just, yeah, they could have fleshed it out. That being said, if somebody dared me to say, go and write a better screenplay, I would not be up to the challenge. Yeah. So, so I'll give it a go if anyone's listening. Yeah, um, but, yeah, I'll give it a go. <laughs> but um, so my, my least favourite aspect of the entire movie had to be in the Green Goblin suit. Um, because I thought it's gaudy, it hasn't aged well, it didn't look well at the time. It was uh, roundly criticised at the time and it's been roundly criticised ever since. It's uh, silly, it's rigid, it's out of place with the rest of the movie, especially how authentic and how amazing the Spider-Man suit looked. And like really, to be honest with you, when you look past that, everything else is pretty good. It's a solid movie, it holds up pretty well over time, two decades later. I actually really enjoyed it when I re-watched re it. Same. So I think yeah, but it's a big thing, isn't it? If something aesthetic mm. becomes the worst thing about a film. Just one, and not even just the aesthetic of the city, the the battlefield, yeah. the aesthetic of a character. Yeah, when that <clears throat> it has to be pretty off-putting to be the thing that jumps. At yeah, you, you can look past away. it. Over you time. can look past it, but yeah. a lot of times it would seem like you know, like you're you're kind of 
zeroing in or something. But I, I completely kind of agree. I, yeah. I, I'm obviously it wasn't the biggest thing for me, but I completely agree. I, he showed up and again uh, to to use my fiance's analogy. Uh, it was and she goes that's 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 a Power Rangers bad guy right yeah and then he kind of fell and he got up and went Rah! yeah he looked, Spider-Man punches him and he grabs it and goes impressive he's a bit out of place oh yeah it was really it, really it kind of it does have the hint of Power Ranger character like a pantomime villain like yeah him, yeah instead of like what we've come to expect with a bit more layered and kind of nuanced to these uh, villains in our pieces because it's because the, the audience asked for that and we kind of got it and the films have succeeded because of it. when you look through and you have the likes of Loki and Thanos and stuff like that these are layered characters you oh, know absolutely. what I mean and you yeah. need you need your villain to be layered for your for your hero to really come across and to show that these odds are insurmountable that this yeah. is a genius with super strength and superpower and that's that's one of the reasons the Green Goblin was so interesting in the source material and the cartoons that followed is because he was this layered kind of tormented guy and he was kind of like the perfect opposite to Spider-Man in a lot of ways. I know Venom is more of an obvious kind of choice now, but like he's a, he's a genius. He uses technology and like he's kind of like tormented by his past and his own decisions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, but, um, so do, do you have anything else to add or should we wrap it up or what you want to do? I think we can wrap it up. Um, I'm working on a comedy that I wrote and sent it to yeah. the BBC. And awesome. They, and and I got to the third round before they told me to go fuck myself. So, you know, That's no big awesome. deal. Got to the last 8%. So, and it's called um, Met, um, Metalworks. And I'm hoping to try and get that out there into the, the stratosphere again soon. The stratosphere? Yeah, fuck it. Okay. So I said if, it. I'm owning it. If people want to find you on social media or anything like that, do you have anywhere they can uh, look you up? I call Nolly Boats on, on Instagram. So Nolly Boats on Instagram if you want to hear about it. And we'd be all looking forward to keeping our ears out for Metalworks. Hopefully we'll be seeing it on our screens before too long. And um, until then, I'm Vincent Green. I've been your host, the Spider Fan. And this is Noah. Noah, say goodbye. Bye. And you didn't know Sheila was listening all along. Sheila, say goodbye. Right. <laughs> We're out. That was the first episode of Spider Fan. Thanks for listening. Thanks Even for listening. Nobody might ever hear this. Nobody might ever hear this. Goodbye. If you listen to all this, what have you been doing with your life? So I just want to say before it goes, like, goodbye, true believers. And remember, Stan Lee, we owe a lot to you, and Steve Ditko, we even owe even more. Take care. Rest in power. Rest in power. Good night.